55 of the Survival Podcast. Today we're going to talk about the top topic of the week, it seems like, CJ, the uh, potential for a national divorce in the United States. And I wanted to come at this from a standpoint of what would the best case scenario look like? Because I, I don't even think that would be trouble free at all, but it, it may be a, an eventuality. And so I asked you to come on and folks today, I would consider CJ my co-host, not a not a guest for an interview in the driver's seat with me on this. Um, I, I just want to ask you, I had you on like a week and a half ago or so. We talked about the fall of an empire. We, we actually kind of touched on this eventuality. Did you think we'd be talking about it in mass this much two weeks later? <laughs> um no. Uh, who can predict <laughs> the crazy wild ways of Marjorie Taylor Greene? And um, yeah, you know, I mean, she's a bit of nice. I don't everything, but uh, boy, um, you know, he definitely is effective at just rocking the boat. Yeah, and it, it, it made a big hit, I guess, because it's a sitting member of Congress and a fairly well-known one. Uh, it's not the first time somebody said anything like this, including not the first time somebody said it from a position of power. And yet um, it really just like it set the left off in like a tizzy. I, I said it took like one tweet from Marjorie Taylor Greene to make the left pro-America, pro-law enforcement, pro-borders, pro-military. I mean, it, it's a kind of insane because it's actually the exact opposite of everything they've been saying for the last ever. Are we having connection troubles with you, CJ? Oh, good Lord. He's locked up. Uh, I have been having bad internet luck lately. Can you still hear my you audio? Try to drop. What's that? There you go. I see you now. Okay. Let's see if this you works. Just like a to a lower resolution camera yeah. and maybe that'll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That works. Um, I don't know if you heard what I said then. Um, it seemed like this one tweet by Green made the left all of a sudden pro-borders, pro-America, pro-law enforcement, pro-military, which seems to be kind of the opposite of where they've been coming from for the last ever. Yeah, all of a sudden they become um, almost as cartoonish as like the Bush, you know, the George W. Bush Merca types in the you know yeah. 20 years ago yeah. time period. Yeah, it, it, it's oddly bizarre. Uh, it's, I guess, another Pavlovian response that it seems like both sides are just typical uh, in having. Uh, can we start off with what examples in recent history of something like this are there? I mean, there is the, the Soviet Union. That's one example. But it's not like when I say recently, I mean a couple hundred years. I, I think people are of this belief that the borders are like this constant in, in society. While you answer that, I'm actually going to. Uh, to, to play a little quiet video here for people. And this is the uh, last thousand years of the map of Europe uh, going for those that are on the video version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a great video. I mean, most Americans know little to no European history, like prior to maybe at best world war one. 
and um, even less of the rest of the world. And so Americans, even if they know a little bit of American history, it's sort of tunnel visioned on just American history. And of course, a lot of the American history they know is actually uh, carefully crafted propaganda narratives anyway. But borders are constantly fluctuating throughout history. And um, there's a, a book, and I tweeted about this recently. There's a book called America Confronts a Revolutionary World, which was published on the Bicentennial in 1976 by one of my favorite historians, um, William Appleman Williams, one of my favorite American historians. And he argues that like mentally, intellectually, um, Americans, most of them anyway, are like locked in an eternal present where they can't, they don't really mentally connect with on any deep level the past, but they also can't grapple with like potential changes going forward into the future. And I would argue that that even includes a lot of so-called progressives. And so there's this tendency, number one, to be tunnel visioned on American history and have nothing to compare it to. And number two, to assume that like, in this case, borders where they are right now is like the divinely ordained magical place they always must be. So in reality, borders are constantly fluctuating. Nations are, you know, joining together, separating, uh, empires are rising and falling, etc. So, um, you know, there's, there's a number of recent examples we could give. Um, but since we're trying to focus on best case scenario, I'm going to try and give a couple of the ones that I know a little bit about that I think played out about as well as you can. So, you know, the, the Soviet Union d- dissolving kind of a mixed bag, but, mm. Um, two good examples that I can think of um, in the past, you know, century a little bit more. One is when Norway split off from Sweden, which I would bet you 99% of Americans probably don't even know that that Norway used to be part of Sweden, used to be controlled by Sweden. Now, you know, the Norwegians, they have a different language, a slightly different culture, even though, you know, they're all Scandinavian. Um, And so in the early 20th century, a lot of Norwegians wanted to go their own way, didn't want to be ruled by Sweden anymore. And the short version is that both sides had enough wisdom and sense to realize that cashing that out in the form of a war would be really stupid and counterproductive and would cost a lot more than it could ever bring in benefit, regardless of who, quote unquote, won. And so they ultimately worked out a political deal, and there was a plebiscite in Norway, and I want to say it was like a 99% landslide of Norwegians in favor of going their own way, and the government of Sweden had enough you know, reasonableness and sense to be like, all right, you know, that's what you guys really want to do. And you know, my, I, I've been to Sweden um, many years ago. I've never been to Norway, but I've known some people from Norway, and the sense that I get is that they have a little bit of kind of almost friendly rivalry at most, where it's like, you know, fans of different sports teams kind of a thing, right? Um, And it's like not even enough to where, you know, fans of sports teams sometimes get belligerent. Like it's not even that extreme. It's like kind of mellow uh, sports fan rivalry between Norway and Sweden. They get along just fine. They've never fought a war in that hundred and almost 120 years since they split And, you know, they kind of do their own thing. They've got similarities, but differences. Uh, Norway has been, I think, since the beginning, part of NATO. Sweden has not. I know recently they've applied to join. I think it hasn't been officially, um, you know, finalized yet or not. 
But up until very recently, Sweden was um, not a part of NATO. But the flip side is Norway is still to this day not a part of the EU. Sweden is. So in other words, they, mm. they were kind of flipped from each other. Norway and NATO, not the EU. Sweden and EU, but not NATO. And yet, yeah. guess what? They still get along fine. They trade with each other. And, you know, it's no big deal. So, yeah, and just for people that are on the video here, what I was playing around with that or the video that we have on the screen with us, you'll see 1904 there. And I couldn't quite get it to stop in 1903. But you see that Ukraine is on the map. Mm-hmm. Until 1903, there was no Ukraine on the map. It wasn't even on the map. It actually means uh, basically the borderlands. It was a region of Europe for a very, very long time. So as a nation, Ukraine is a baby. If I let it keep playing, which I will, you'll also see it goes away and comes back. And there is a fluidity in these borders that I think we're just not comfortable with. And we do live in this place where, like, everything was always as it is. You see, it just went away there in 1918. And you'll see it come back, well, in a little bit here, right? World War II, and we're going to dodge the, and then it's still not there. And then eventually you will see it return to the map. And it, it's something that people have, a, you know, there you go. It wasn't until the 1990s uh, that you see it as a, a nation again after the Soviet Union broke up, right? Um, and the Soviet Union breaking up, I think it is a mixed bag because, one of the issues is what's going on now. But the actual breakup was for for, a, for an empire of that size. It was actually fairly clean. Now we have these border disputes. And that's part of what I want to talk about today, because there's a lot of islands of blue and islands of red out there. And to me, like what people don't know about Ukraine, that's a big part of the agitation here is this is a nine year old war, not a one year old war. It's been a civil war going on for the past eight years. It all started when we installed Zelensky as a puppet dictator, basically. And the region at dispute here is not all of Ukraine, as the media keeps making it out. It's two provinces uh, in in, uh, eastern Ukraine that are over 90 percent ethnically Russian. So these are people that were caught on the wrong side of the border when the Soviet Union broke apart, and they're not happy about it. And their own government has refused to honor its own deals with them. And that's why this has been going on. And then we get all outraged. Putin invaded. And this is not a defense of Vladimir Putin, but I don't think the United States would have sat by for eight years and done nothing if we had a a, a civil war going on in Canada or Mexico on our border. We can't leave shit alone in Central Africa, let alone on our own border. So to me, it seems like it's not so much that, it's a mixed bag. It's that the break wasn't clean. And I wonder how we would deal with that because like the, the thumbnail for today's episode is the last election map by County. And you look at that and go, there's really not any blue States what there are blue areas within States like California and like some of the new England States are, are fairly much just blue, but most States we think it was like a blue state. There's an awful lot of red within that state. Even California, like half the state's red. So if we end up with this splitting of some kind, you end up with a lot of people in that same position that are like not ethnically behind the wrong side of the line. They're more idealistically on the wrong side of the line. Yeah, yeah. And another thing I wanted to just make sure to throw out there is 
because of Americans' tunnel vision on their own history to the degree they know any history at all, number one, they tend to assume that any sort of a breakup of a nation always must involve a bloody war. When Mm -hmm. history shows, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the choices people make. But the second thing that I think Americans often get tunnel visioned on is that if potentially our country or a country um, is to break up into smaller pieces, that it always has to be into two and only two. And so Mm -hmm. they'll go like, well, there's no longer the clean sort of Mason-Dixon line where you can easily split in half over an issue. It's like, yeah, yeah, but but who says something as huge as our country should only dissolve if it dissolves into just two pieces and that's it? The Soviet Union uh, dissolved into 15 pieces. So, you know, we could break it up into a bunch of much smaller to midsize than just half and half exactly. Um, And the second thing I would say about this is that, you know, I I feel like uh, some sort of giant uh, imperial collapse crisis is coming our way and that the sooner we can acknowledge that, the sooner we can do our best to manage it in as reasonable of a fashion as possible. It's like if you're flying a plane and you're in a situation where you're going to crash, like there's just no way around it. The sooner you come to grips with that, the sooner you can focus on crashing with as least damage and harm uh, as possible. And that's your best option rather than fantasizing about magically fixing the plane. And so, you know, one thing that comes to mind uh, for me to try and manage the issue of people being, you know, on the other side of the line from where um, they feel like their compatriots are is think about how much the United States government spends on quote unquote national defense mm-hmm. in a year. Um, it's, I think it's more than the next 10 nations combined. It's somewhere oh, yeah. in that range. Yeah. Like and if you add China, in China, Russia, the biggest powers in the world, you combine all their military spending. It, it comes to about what we spend a year. Yeah. And that's just like the official numbers. If you add in all the other kind of hidden stuff, like, for example, the the secret black ops budgets that we don't know about. Yeah. And you add in the fact that, for example, the nukes are not paid for through the Defense Department. They're paid for through the De- Department of Energy. And um, the defense budget doesn't count uh, the budget to take care of veterans who who come home, you know, needing help after fighting in these stupid wars. And so when you actually add up the real costs of America's quote unquote defense policy, it's actually more like a trillion dollars a year. And so I'm pretty sure I, I, you know, taught history for 16 years, not math, but I'm pretty sure a pretty small fraction of that trillion dollars would be more than enough to, for example, set up a program to enable people who really wanted to, to, you know, relocate and, and kind of help them, get their feet under themselves in their new red or blue utopia or whatever. You know, and there's someone here making a comment that I've heard a lot of versions of this this week since this whole debate went kind of mainstream. We're separate, but we're also united. First of all, I don't think we're separate. I don't think we have the sovereignty that the states were supposed to have. And I think that you would back that up as a a student of history. Um, But if we split up, each split has to support itself and we would need passports for traveling like other countries do. Okay, so get a passport. But there's this idea that we couldn't support ourselves. Like that if, if the United States broke up into a group of regions, that some of the regions just would not, can't make it, can't do it, no way, it's impossible. Um, you know, I, I find that odd because there are so many nations so much smaller than ours. 
that do very well for themselves in a variety of ways. And it's, it's like there's a constant quest to just control all the money is what it really see all the money and all the resources. And the reason that you see these conglomerations like the EU come together is to compete with us for that control by having the power of many. And, and I don't think it's ridiculous to, to say that, you know, the greater southeastern United States, let's say Texas over to Florida, and I don't know how far north, could not function as a nation. That, that sounds preposterous to me. I personally think Texas could function as a nation in of itself. I don't know how many other states I could say that about. I don't like life in California, but I think they could function as a nation. I think they're large enough. They have a population base. They have a lot of natural resources. I think Florida might be able to as well. I don't know that there's another state that I would put on that list could go alone, but they certainly could go together. Well, let me throw out a, a counterexample. Switzerland okay. is um, one of the wealthiest countries in the world per capita. Yep. And, you know, they've got their problems like anywhere else, but it's a pretty nice place to be. And um, the population of Switzerland, I believe, is like a quarter of the population of Florida, if okay. my memory is correct. And their land area is significantly less than the land area of Florida. And they're landlocked. And Switzerland is not a member of either the EU or NATO. So you yeah. can't even use that as an excuse. Yeah. So how are the Swiss thriving and prospering more than the vast majority of the world in that situation if it's impossible for a nation to function uh, if they don't have at least 300 million people and have a continent? Yeah. Yeah. And that, one of the things that they've always been is as neutral as possible at all times. Very strong on national defense and civil defense. Yeah. Right. And very much the place that people would keep their money. And I would say until very recently, that was it was the gold standard was a Swiss bank account. Um, they they saw to business rather than the business of empire. Um, they are incredibly wealthy, too, especially for capital. Their taxes are stupid high, too. But I think they probably have a hell of a lot more self-determination than the average American does. I think the average Swiss citizen has more voice in their own nation than the average American has had in, in my adult lifetime. Yeah, for sure. And another thing about Switzerland, Switzerland in many ways is like a miniature version of what a lot of our founding fathers intended us to be. Yeah. And one of the ways they are, aside from, you know, defense only militia type military and all that stuff is that in policy of neutrality is that their government is actually, even though the nation itself is quite small, still the government is extremely decentralized. And mm. so actually most governing in Switzerland takes place at the level of what's called the canton, mm -hmm. which is roughly the size of an American county. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. even though their taxes might be high, um, most of the benefit of what they're paying is actually going to the people who are paying it in some fashion. And it's under local control for a lot of important uh, governing decisions and things. So again, if Switzerland can be as successful as it is, I have a hard time thinking that Texas is too small to function or Florida is too small to function to function. Yeah. And I mean, if, uh, per personally living here, if Texas did go in some way, I would want to see our counties have the autonomy that our states in the union were supposed to have. That that's what I would want to see. There's certain inalienable rights enshrined in the constitution of Texas. And then the county governments are required by our constitution here to function in a Republican fashion not the party, the, the system of governance right. for some of the folks out there. 
Um, and I'd like to see that emulated that, you know, Dallas County has a hell of a lot more liberals than Tarrant County. And Dar- Dallas County is a very liberal centric county. And that's, you know, Dallas is a liberal city. Fort Worth is a is a Republican city. And they're they're 18 miles apart and everybody gets along. And if you want to try all your liberal programs in Dallas County, go ahead because movement with, you know, from one county to another is a hell of a lot of use of movement from one state to another, especially, you know, if you live where I do, I'm three and a half hours at best from any state line. If, if Texas did something stupid and I wanted to go to Oklahoma or New Mexico, which I wouldn't, or Louisiana, which I also wouldn't, um, that's, that's a much bigger move in my life. You could work in Dallas County and live in Tarrant and many people do. So I, I think that they're, that that would kind of be ideal for me. Now the thing is, we're here not to talk about me and what I want and Texas sovereignty, but what people want for themselves. And I think my my biggest issue with this is when you propose the idea that we even have the discussion you and I are having today, and then people lose their effing shit over it. Right? What you're saying is you're you like words like self determination and you like words like liberty and you like words like freedom, but you don't mean it. Because what could be a greater self-determination than a state saying, hey, you know what? We created the union and therefore we have the right to deconstruct. And we, we've had enough of this experiment and we want to go our own way. We don't fight. And I would expect that we would be at least loosely allies with each other. We would have trade. We have commerce. And, you know, somebody brought up you need passports. Well, it depends on the agreement between the nations. There's nations you can go to right now. You don't need a passport. You, you technically need one to go to Mexico, but you don't. I can tell you for a fact you don't. Um, getting back into the U.S., I, here's my here's my driver's license. I'm a United States citizen. You're back in America. Mexico, they'll hold you up for a couple seconds, and they'll let you in. Right? So it doesn't have to be that complicated either. Yeah, yeah, and there's you know plenty of, of European countries that have agreements where you don't need to – you know, a passport for national borders. And I'm not just talking about countries where both of them are in the EU. Obviously, if both countries in question are in the EU, then that's the answer to why you don't need a passport. But like, you know, um, to travel back and forth from Switzerland to either most or maybe even all of its neighbors, there's no passport needed. Um, I'm pretty sure that even, even with Brexit, I'm pretty sure you can still travel back and forth between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is still politically part of the UK and thus part of Brexit. So, you know, it's just a matter of negotiation. You know, part of part of what I I think makes Americans of especially of like right now, um, what I would consider unreasonable about even considering these sorts of questions is that I think that Americans have been um, particularly in recent generations conditioned to not even seriously ever consider negotiating about anything. Americans, you know, the saying used to be uh, from Clausewitz that war is politics continued by other means. But I think Americans in recent decades have been conditioned to think that politics is simply war continued by other means. Hmm. And so there's this like aversion to even the idea of negotiating with somebody to try and, you know, sort out your, your disagreements and your problems. 
Um, and there's, there's this whole, this whole narrative, you know, they'll be like, well, basically they'll try to, they'll try to, um, portray any attempt at reasonable negotiation as automatically being quote unquote appeasement. And they'll say, well, this one time in 1938, appeasement didn't work. Therefore, appeasement never works. Yeah. And my response to that is actually appeasement works lots of the time. The only yeah. difference is, the only difference is when it works, they don't call it appeasement. That's that's the reality. When appeasement works, which it often does, they just call it good negotiations or wise diplomacy or yeah. skillful statecraft. And I, I yeah. think one thing that would help is just if Americans in general would go back to as our founding fathers and the you know immediate subsequent generations of American leaders understood, um, they negotiated with other countries all the time without going to war. And we're just conditioned, particularly ever since like 9-11. Um, to have this this really uh, stupid mindset that you, you're never supposed to negotiate with anybody about anything that negotiations never solve problems when in reality most of the time throughout history they they often do and we used to think of war as the exception which it still is for most of the world right now but Americans have been conditioned to think that war is normal and peace is this bizarre rare exception that only happens after you've killed everybody else. Yeah, I also think it's like this whole like the United States has not bled in war for a long time. A lot of people are going to get pissed off and go with troops and whatever. I don't mean the troops. The troops have bled too much. I mean us. We 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 haven't even had rationing since freaking World War II. So there's almost nobody alive that even remembers having a ration in, in place because we're at a time of war. So we haven't had to suffer. War's over there. We don't have to worry about it. And when you think you're the baddest ass on the block and somebody else is going to do all the fighting for you and it won't really affect you and you'll get what you want out of it, it's easy to choose war then. If we had had, you know, our streets and our buildings blown to complete shit in World War II, we might not be so quick to jump back into this thing. Right. And I mean, the last time that we really had a, a, a true invasion of the United States where troops were on our soil long-term, did damage, I guess would be the War of 1812, yep. right? So that's a long, 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 it was, and it was so long ago that Andrew Jackson's famous Battle of New Orleans happened after the war was already over and nobody could tell him. That's, that's how far we have to go back to a time when we actually experienced war on our soil, other than, I guess, the American Civil War, which is also the thing everybody brings up. It has to be the Civil War, and I, I love the people that are like, we already did this, man. We already did this. Like, it's the most ludicrous thing in the world or because that war ended the way that it did, then it settled forever again. Mm -hmm. Like it's divinely ordained borders or something. I, I don't know where people are coming from with this. I I'm fine with people saying, I don't think it's a good idea. Part of why I want this discussion today is so that people that are raw, rawing it understand there are some things that are not so easy to figure out. Right. Um, and if it's going to be done, it has to be done very, very carefully including dealing with our own states. So the last thing I want is te Texas to go independent and become worse than California, which if you look at the red, blue split in Texas by just popular vote, dude, it's not that far away from that. Neither is Florida. They're both states that in the future could go either way. Now, I think if you, if you install a Republican form of governance and you give basically the same type of advantage to the lesser populated areas like are supposed to exist in our bicameral caramel legislature in the federal level, that 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 solves a lot of that problem. That's why they did it in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think decentralization solves a lot of problems. That's why it was the original intent of our republic to be extremely decentralized. And, you know, probably nobody would be talking or thinking about this idea of national divorce if we were still as decentralized as we were, you know, 200 plus years ago. Um, you know, if if Texas was still free to do its own thing in almost every regard and New York was free to do its own thing in almost every regard. And that was still kind of a part of our attitude and our instinct as Americans of, hey, look, you know, I wouldn't want to do things the way they do 800 miles away. But, you know, I don't think that they should also have a say over me either. And, you know, maybe the easiest way to fix this whole mess we're in right now would be to revert back to. Uh, extreme decentralization. The problem is, is like, how is that any less utopian than the idea yeah. of, of kind of, you know, in a rational, orderly way, breaking it up into smaller pieces entirely? Because think about what, you know, I, I, I've, I've been tweeting about this the last couple of days and, and getting a lot of, um, a lot of attention from it. And, you know, I've had people respond to me and go, uh, all we got to do is go back to following the Constitution. And it's like, OK, in theory, yeah. But do yeah. you understand, A, the generation of guys that wrote and ratified that thing couldn't consistently stick to it? Correct. And B, in order to get the federal government of today to to follow the letter of the Constitution, that would mean having majorities in both houses of Congress who were basically Ron Paul's. A yeah. Ron Paul president, a majority of Ron Paul Supreme Court justices, and most federal bureaucrats and heads of kind of the deep state agencies to also be Ron Pauls who will scrupulously obey the Constitution. So how is that any more far fetched than saying like, all right, you know what, it's it's better to just break this thing off uh, into smaller pieces and go our separate ways peacefully? Yeah, whenever anybody brings that up, somebody did hear already today in the chat, and when I said all we have to do is follow the Constitution as written, then it wasn't followed as written immediately after it was written. Right? It might have been followed better, but I think a big part of why it was followed better is because it was more difficult at the time for the state to violate it because of, you know, we didn't have a, a, the ability to censor people with electronics. We, we didn't have a bloated federal government. The government could not just print as much money as it wanted at will. I mean, the government was even somewhat restrained in spending all the way up until the 1970s when we finally closed the last vestiges of the gold window. In a fiat world, the, the, the utopian is like utopia is more likely than what you're talking about. Right. Like that's not going to happen. And it, it brings me to another point, like that the left all of a sudden is uh Marjorie Taylor Greene made them pro-borders, pro-America. She also apparently made them anti-welfare. So the left is now anti-welfare because every single post about this has some leftist coming into it going, the red states take more than they give, right? And and that's true of many of them. And, and we're talking mostly your more poverty-stricken states like Missouri and Mississippi and Louisiana. They definitely are. They're like about... For a dollar that goes out, about a dollar fifteen to a dollar twenty comes back to them. But to me, that's actually that's actually the problem. You're you're enabling a level of control and a level of governance that should exist. Do we need to be spending that much money in in, in Mississippi or Louisiana or even Texas? Like I, I don't know that we do, and I also know that a lot of the money that leaves, I don't care how you talk about it coming back, a lot of it leaves the whole damn country. 
we're close to 120 billion just on Ukraine in a year, right? Yeah. That, Which so is more than Russia spent on their side there. of the war. Yeah. And the money that's coming back, is it really because California is paying in more than they're getting back? Because they are. I'll be fair on that. That's math. Or is it because the government's printing money that doesn't exist and sending it to Missouri or sending it to one of these other, you know, less uh, less financially uh, stable states? Yeah, well, I'll bring up another even more recent historical example of a nation splitting up in a peaceful and orderly fashion. And that is when Czechoslovakia broke up into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, right? Which, so the Soviet Union fell, and as a result, also the Warsaw Pact ended in 1991. And only two years later, um, if I remember my timeline right, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, the two halves of the country, mm -hmm. they decided, you know what, we'd rather go our separate ways than be one country. And that's a country that even when it was united as Czechoslovakia was still smaller than most American states in land and population. And yet they decided, you know what, we'd rather just have an amicable divorce. And um, my understanding of this, I'm not an expert, but I've read up on a bit on it because I've studied the, the collapse and, and end of the Soviet empire pretty extensively. And my understanding is that basically um, the, the Slovakia side, the eastern side, was at the time of the, the breakup, the less developed side. And it's also the less populated side, but it's, mm. it's the overall, it was the less developed, less wealthy side. And so when they were united, it was like the Czech side was in, in various ways sort of subsidizing the less developed Slovakian side. Okay. And so that said, over the past 30 years, we have 30 years now to look at those those two countries now as separate countries. Um, my understanding is that Slovakia, you know, was poorer for a while, but overall has done quite well for itself. You know, fast forwarding to now, they're both basically prosperous, high tech first world nations. And on top of that, um, I'm pretty sure that at some point over the last 30 years, Slovakia may have actually overtaken the Czech Republic in per capita wealth. Huh. So, you know, again, this idea of being trapped mentally in an eternal present and thinking that because right now, I don't know, maybe Mississippi gets more, you know, proportionate benefit from the feds than California does. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if, you know, Mississippi and California are no longer part of the same empire, that therefore Mississippi is doomed to always be a third world country. Yeah. And it might actually start using its own resources better and it might cut a lot of pork spending that it doesn't need to be spending. How much of that 15 cents on the dollar really needs to be spent? There's this view that if we cut anything, everything just falls apart, like without all these programs. And if you go back even 20 years, we didn't have half of what we have today. I'm not even talking about total dollars. I'm talking about programs and various places that the money is spent into. If we got rid of something like, oh, I don't know, Department of Education alone, right? A lot of that money that's recycled in and back out goes through the Department of Education. Well, all that is is people in Washington telling Missouri how they need to run their schools. I, I am of the opinion that we don't need that. I wonder how many of these giant federal agencies that take care of all this redistribution of wealth we simply don't need. And I think that the idea that we will get rid of them as 50 states is insane. 
I think the only way that happens is em- empire collapse. Like that's the only way, and that might happen. There'll still be vestiges of them and whatever. The yeah, only way yeah. they actually go away, and I think this is the bigger part of what I what I would prefer for the rest of the world of us finding a way to do this is that it would prevent us from doing all the shit we do all over the world. When people say like we need to be together so we can be strong, what they're really saying is it is this this con- conglomeration we've created and this fiat money system that enables us to meddle in Central Africa. And if we don't do that, the Central Africans will be hiding in our closet and they'll kill us. That's how these people come across to me. I know that sounds like hyperbole to some, but I mean, that's what they're actually saying. Like Putin will come get us. all. Putin has no interest in taking over all of Ukraine because if he did, he'd be bombing the shit out of Kiev right now. That's how you know he does it, because that's what he would be doing. And he's not doing that. He's never made an attempt to push all the way through Ukraine. So he's certainly not coming here. But if we keep, we're the ones also, by the way, that keep talking shit about nuclear war, and then he'll respond to it and they'll say, nuclear war is being threatened by Putin. Like, that's been going on since the beginning of this, too. The whole thing, we are, there, have you ever seen the thing by Michelin Webb, and it's like the Nazis in World War II, and they're, in the, and they're planning their next move, and the one guy says to the other Nazi guy, he says, you know, are we the baddies? And they, then they have this whole discussion, it's like, we've got skulls. You know, we'll make, and they're like, and they finally both realize, and they like haul ass and run away. And sometimes I feel like we're, I'm in the middle of that skit, and we who are supposed to be the force of good in the world, in many ways, we have become the baddies. Yeah, I know exactly uh, what you mean, and I actually just tweeted about this either earlier today or last night. I forget. And you know, the American establishment, the American power elite, since at least World War II, have had it as an unquestionable dogma that America needs to rule and dominate the planet. Okay. Now they, they don't say it in those Dr. Evil sounding terms because they know average Americans would hear that and be put off by it. So they, they cloak it in euphemisms like global security and stability and underwriting the liberal rules based international order. But what they really mean, if you look at what it actually means in practice, is America rules and dominates the world. Now, tell me in what, you know, epic story that resonates with humans on a deep archetypal level, in what epic saga is the side that's trying to rule the world the hero? Usually, pretty much all the time, the side that's trying to rule or take over the world are the bad guys. You know, whether it's Sauron or Palpatine or whoever, um, and it's the side that just wants their little area to be left alone and be free, like the Shire. That's those are the heroes. Okay, so why is that? Why does that resonate on such a deep gut psychological level with us? And yet our leaders are so slick at uh, bullshit that they're able to basically be carrying out a foreign policy of like a cartoon bad guy from a Bond film, and yet couch it in rhetoric that makes it sound like we're the scrappy underdog that um you know doesn't really want to fight or rule anybody but only reluctantly does these things like bombing syria and libya and whatever yeah yeah it's it's actually very bizarre but it also makes perfect sense because you know you're a little younger than me but you're closer to my age than not and so if you grew up through the 80s the 70s the 90s Everything on TV depicted us going all the way back to World War II. We're the good guys. We're always the good guys. We're all, and the good guy also always wins. And the cartoonish uh, enemy you're talking about was always like, even in comedies, right? Or t- cartoons, right? 
Cobra in G.I. Joe, right? Or uh, was it Get Smart and they had Chaos, right? Like, it like a, a, a play on the whole Bond thing. And, you know, the chaos is trying to take over the world. And uh, or Dr. Evil in, in, in Austin Powers. Like, even in our comedy, even in our satire, we're always the good guys. Everybody else is always the bad guys. And they created this illusion, I think, not just that we were the good guys and we needed to do these things. We didn't want to. We needed to do them. They also created a belief that somebody was going to do it, that there has to be somebody to do this. So if we don't do it, then China will. And even if we're not the goodies, if we're the baddies, they're worse baddies than we are. Like China will control everything if we don't. And it, it, what it makes me think of is like a like a like a chef that brings people in to cook in his kitchen, but he won't let anybody do anything. He has to do everything, except that just affects the kitchen. It doesn't affect the planet. Right. But that's, that's kind of how we are. Like we're the only ones that can do this right. We're not just the good guys. We're also hyper competent. We have unlimited resources. We can, America can. How many times have you heard that in a political speech? America can do anything, right? We can't do anything. We can't. We can't fix bridges in our cities right now here in America. But we can fix the problems in the Middle East that have been going on for thousands of years. The the level of arrogance in that, and that's part of why I think this is a good discussion to have about doing this, because it's not just us that's affected by all of this. It's the rest of the world. And the average idiot in America doesn't understand that. They don't understand that. Like, there are people in the world today, their life is a lot worse because of us and what we're doing right now. And the only thing we have to do to fix it is freaking stop. Yeah, well, well just uh, uh, adding on to your point, uh, much of the city of D.C. is pretty screwed up. You know, other yeah. than a few nice areas where the politicians live and work. Much yeah. of the city of D.C. is like you know, slums and, and ghettos and whatever. Yeah. And so think about that. That's where the federal government has like almost total just direct control. So yeah. the people who can't even fix down the block from where they live and work are going to fix the Middle East, right? Are going to fix sub-Saharan Africa. Like I, I can't wrap my head around the degree of brainwashing and propaganda that is necessary to believe that that's like me saying, I, I, I don't know, like I, I can't run my own life, but I'm going to be um, the king of the world. You know, uh, yeah. it, I don't know. It just drives me nuts. The cognitive no. dissonance required. Here's an interesting uh, hypothetical. Let's say we did break up into some, and I don't think it would be 50 States each independent. I, I don't think, it would work that way. There'd be some sort of regional thing and there'd probably be like, it might even be the case that there'd be the majority would still be the United States. There'd be maybe a couple parts that broke away. What do you think those parts would use for currency? Cause if they use the dollar, they've accomplished, in my opinion, they've accomplished nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that the dollar might, hyperinflate and lose value so quickly in the relatively near future that yeah, nobody's going to want it anyway, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, I mean, you probably would have a combination of, you know, some of the new republics um, creating their own brand new currency, uh, maybe some continuing to use the dollar if it still has any value that's worth bothering with. Um, I would hope that at least some of them would go back to some sort of hard money, 
you know, whatever that means, whether it's, I don't know, some kind of crypto that's not centrally controlled or whether it's, you know, some kind of uh, new high tech version of the gold standard. I don't know. But, um, you know, th- this is also the, the idea of like the laboratories of democracy, right, that we're told in civics class mm-hmm. is why we have different states is because each state gets to experiment with doing things differently. And over time, you can kind of see which what works and what doesn't and whatever. And, and that would be great if it worked that way. Of course, in practice, it usually doesn't. States copy the worst things of other states often. But, you know, by having uh, uh, decentralization to the point where states or regions or whatever could create their own currency – you know, you would be able to have competing experiments and is it going to work everywhere? No, but it'll probably, at least some places will probably get it righter than we have it right now. And the alternative is to remain chained to the dollar as it basically becomes, you know, kindling for your fireplace or whatever for when they ban your, your gas stove. Yeah. You know, and you're hitting on something there that's common whenever you bring up anything that's not following the mainstream order. What you're hitting on is that there's this idea that for a solution to be valid, it has to be perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better. Right. If it's better than what we have, then that's an improvement. And you're moving incrementally then in the right direction. I I wonder what would happen, though, currency wise, because once you did it, you could just say we're going to issue our own currency like the whole the state shall make nothing of money except you know gold and silver would be out the window. Because, well, we're not subject to that constitution anymore because buy. But, you know, gold is a historic wealth preservation, and states like Texas actually have a shitload of gold put away, right? Most other states don't. So I think that might have an input on what you would do. Do you have a shitload of money put away or don't you? We also have cities in um, Texas, Fort Worth and Austin both, not doing it big time, but mining Bitcoin. I don't mean they have Bitcoin miners in their city. I mean that the the city owns ant miners in their data center. Like Fort Worth has like it's like four ant miners. But like so if you look at Florida and Texas, they're huge Bitcoin meccas. They've become that. And you know, Florida has the beaches and we don't really have the beaches like Florida does. Uh, I think that's why Miami's been a little bit hotter for that. But, you know, that would maybe lead them toward maybe this is what we do, because it's if you're seeking independence. And I know some people hate Bitcoin or whatever, but if you're seeking independence then you want a non-manipulatable currency. And maybe they even issue a Texas dollar or Florida dollar or Southwest dollar or whatever it is, you know. But maybe there's a reserve of Bitcoin, kind of the approach that, you know, El Salvador's taking. They're still using the dollar but they're creating a national reserve of Bitcoin. Yeah. And I, and I think a lot of Americans, this is one area where they don't even know their own history. Um, if you go back to like the early 19th century and long time ago, I did a, I did a multi-part history of the U S dollar series on my podcast way back. Mm-hmm. Um, and most Americans don't know, for example, that um, in the early 19th century, you know, so early 1800s, um, the dollar was legally defined as a given weight of silver, right? But the federal government did not have a monopoly on creating paper currency for more convenient transactions. Uh, in fact, you know, banks would issue their own banknotes. So, you know, if you brought in a, a chunk of silver or a certain amount of gold even, and you, you know, brought that in to, um, first off, there was something called free coinage. Where if like, let's say you were a miner and you dug up a chunk of gold, you could bring it 
to a national mint and for a very small nominal fee, they would mint that into actual like, you know, stamped U.S. dollar, mm-hmm. you know, gold coins. And then if you brought those gold coins into a bank and deposited them, the bank would issue you paper currency, not saying Federal Reserve or even United States Treasury, but saying Bank of so-and-so. And the idea was that um, the banks were, you know, legally required uh, if they wanted to stay in business and not avoid, you know, lawsuits or prosecution or whatever, they were required to be honest about that and, and you know, print up paper money in excess of their precious metal reserves. And now, you know, someone would say, oh, but can't they commit fraud and do it? Yeah, but people commit fraud right now. So, again, you're making you're making the perfect the enemy of the good. Because yeah. I would argue that, that while it's by no means perfect, the money system we had, say, 200 years ago, in many ways, was superior to what we have right now. And right now we have all kinds of technology to make it even better. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't people think because I'm such a Bitcoin advocate that I don't appreciate the value of gold or silver. The, the problem is that it is 2023. And, and we need the ability to transact across geography and time instantaneously. And the problem with gold and silver with that, and you hit on it there, there's there's counterparty risk. There's no way to do this without counterparty risk. But with a technology like Bitcoin, I can I can pay you in Florida and your partner in Tokyo and split a payment and do that in one 10 minute block for a, a fraction of, of the cost of doing it with a credit card. And no one can stop it. But I still think it would be a good idea for if you're if you're going to build a nation to have a financial reserve asset like gold on the nation's bank's balance books. I, I think that makes sense. And, I you know, I also think maybe it makes sense to do some other things like a lot of these states. They have a tremendous value within them in federal lands. Well, guess what? If I ain't part of you no more, you don't control like that state then takes possession of those federal lands. And this is a thing I've heard uh, defend that uh, many times saying that even if we don't break up, we should still do that. Well, the states can't afford to maintain them. Most of these federal lands don't need a lot of maintaining. We're talking about forests, mountains, et cetera. Like there's not like when we had the government shut down and they like, closed the parks and all this is completely stupid. Right. That tree doesn't require somebody to hold it up or water it or whatever. Like, but I do think there's a tremendous asset in land holdings. Real estate is the single largest asset in this country. And these these regions would take that land back. And I think that becomes something of value on the balance sheet. I mean, and, and that's more concrete in a lot of ways than something like, oh, I don't know, goodwill. Like the largest asset value on the McDonald's balance sheet, McDonald's restaurants is goodwill. It's just a fabricated concept that if I put those arches up, on a random street somewhere people will pull over and it's, it's real. It is real because it does that brand is that strong. But I would say that, you know, a couple million acres of property is more real than goodwill on a balance sheet or a a bank balance sheet, a state bank balance sheet. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just, just in general, um, I would say that the people who are, either defending having one Leviathan federal government controlling everything here and or the people who say that, you know, the U S has to rule the world. Otherwise everything will be bad and there'll be wars yeah. um, that, and this is something else I, I did a, I did a podcast episode on, 
or uh, a podcast ep- episode on a few years ago. Um, it's the difference between emergent order and imposed order. And anyone who's supposed to be any sort of libertarian or thing, even in that ballpark, is supposed to believe that emergent order, order that kind of is, is you know, emerges from the bottom up, while probably never perfect, is always superior to imposed order top down. That's why we're supposed to believe that a free market, while it's not perfect and doesn't make everybody a billionaire, is still, all things considered, superior to a central, um, centrally planned Soviet-style economy. And so who, why on earth, if you, if you believe that a free market is better than a communist centrally planned economy, why on earth would you assume that a unipolar world in which one power is trying to rule and control everything is automatically going to be superior to a multipolar world in which power is more dispersed amongst different regions of the world. Oh, I, yeah. I, I don't know. And do you think that, is there like a middle ground? Like if there was like some kind of breakup that the United States would, could end up functioning more like the EU than completely autonomous independence, because France has a lot more control over France's territory compared to what what people like the, the the big behemoth in the EU is obviously Berlin, right? But France has a lot more autonomy from Berlin than Florida does from DC. Right. So you know, I think if you think of it as a divorce, sometimes there's a divorce, sometimes it's amicable, sometimes it's a trial separation, sometimes two parties and, and they get along but they can't they move to different sides of the house and they have dinner together and sometimes they even are still you know, a conventional married couple, but they have their own space. Like people figure stuff out and, and maybe that's another potential reality. And I, I still think that would have to be regional, not state by state, because that would just be the constitution that we're, we already, I, I guess if we have to accept that we're not going to follow the constitution the way things are right now. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, another thing that just occurred to me now that, you know, I'm just sort of speculating on not, not really married to it as an idea is Maybe part of the reason that it seems so ridiculously far-fetched that today's politicians, that 99% of them are ever going to, you know, stick to the Constitution, maybe part of it is because it, it was created so long ago that both the politicians and just the citizens don't have, despite the lip service they pay to it, they don't really have the buy-in to the mm-hmm. Constitution as a, as a system the way the first few generations of Americans under the Constitution did. And so, you know, perhaps that would be an argument in favor of of kind of renegotiating a new system, um, you know, which whatever its flaws, perhaps that would mean that, um, you know, at least for a while, people in charge would uh, be be more likely, not 100 percent because they never are, but be more likely to abide by it more often. Yeah. And, um, you know, just just in general, again, Americans mentally are are just trapped in an eternal presence. But um an interesting thing to read on this is Machiavelli's book, not The Prince, but The Discourses on Livy, which is about Roman history. Okay. And then read some other kind of modern analyses of it. Like there's a book called um, The Machiavellian Moment by an historian whose last name is Pocock. And the thing they bring up that Americans mostly don't think of in terms of is that no government is ever permanent, including republics. 
And so you need to stop thinking in terms of this utopian idea of, oh, one day we'll have this magical solution that will make a permanently virtuous, eternally stable republic. And instead, think about, like, realistically, what's the best you can do for a while, right? And, you know, I, I'm idealistically, I'm an anarchist. I, I don't think states should exist, mm-hmm. you know, if I had magical powers to control everything. Um, but I also have the capability intellectually to kind of, like, put my statist hat on and yeah. sort of say, like, okay, yes, anarchotopia would be my preference if I had a magic wand. That said, in terms of where we are right now, what's the best we can do? And, you know, perhaps some sort of newly uh, decentralized system is the best option for the time being. And, you know, there's no such thing as an eternal magical solution when it comes to things like governments and republics and whatever. Um, You know, the facts on the ground, and I know I sound like a progressive here, but um, I don't mean that we should have the constitution mean a new thing every week, depending on what's convenient right now. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you can sort of like freeze in carbonite, a given structure forever um, just seems to me to be ahistorical. Yeah. Yeah. It's pragmatism in the end. Like I don't want all of this shit, but some version of it will be. So on some levels, the best I can do is advocate for what I think would be better than what we have. And I've got that for people that are on the audio only. We've got the map of Europe altering again. Because just what, what CJ was talking about there is is so well explained here and looking at a thousand years of history. And it, you might think over a thousand years, well, of course it changed. But it, it, it changes almost by the year at some points in history. It certainly changes. I don't think a decade goes by in this for the vast majority of it where some border doesn't change somewhere. And so I think the other side of it is we live in a stability today that we think of as normal. There is a lot less of what's going on on the screen right now than there was 500 years ago. These borders don't move as quickly. Things aren't more stable. But then we lull ourselves into the belief that that's that's the way it's supposed to be. It's the same shit with the climate change alarmism, right? Like, you know, it's. It, 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 it got colder this year or it got warmer this year. And this the stability of climate that we've been in for about 100 years is not historically the norm for Earth's climate. We tend to have quite a bit of swing up and down, back and forth. And that's not like saying, oh, we can just pollute everything. It's just acknowledging a reality here. You can't go, oh, we went up a degree. And, and this is like some departure from four billion years of history on this planet. It's just a ridiculous contention. And I just I recognize patterns and I just see that same pattern replicated with humanity over and over again, a belief that the way this is, like you, what'd you call it? You call it like permanent present or something. Yeah. Yeah. Locked in an eternal present. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, this is the way it's always been or something. Um, I, here's another question though, because this is something that definitely was an issue in the Soviet union when it fell apart. What about the military assets? Because I could see, like, if this happens, a state like Wyoming or Montana going, yeah, no, we're not going with you guys in, in this big federal system anymore. Like, if, if Texas is leaving, we're, we're freaking out, too, right? There's a lot of nuclear assets in in that area of the country, right? So then, like, how does that get handled? Or you, you look at just straight military assets. I think that the Combined National Guard 
of Texas is something like the ninth or tenth largest military in the world, right? It's measured by power and capability, not by, you know, headcount alone. And so there's a lot of joint military assets in the states. So there's some belong to the Guard, some belong to the Reserve, some are federal. What happens to a place like Fort Hood, which is a regular Army installation, or San Antonio with the Air Force presence there? Like, there's there's a lot to that. That, that was actually, like, we still know there's some nuclear shit just missing from some of the satellite republics in the Soviet Union. So how, how do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, I would look to the Soviet Union as an example, both in terms of overall, it worked pretty well, considering how badly that aspect of things could have gone. But also, like anything else, it's not perfect. And so, you know, people who think historically and try to learn from history, I think it should be all about looking back and kind of saying, number one, I don't expect perfection because nothing's ever perfect. There's always, you know, costs and benefits to everything. But, you know, looking at prior examples of the thing I'm trying to figure out now, what of those examples worked well and possibly mm-hmm. we should try to emulate and what things didn't. And so um, in the case of the Soviet Union, um, I, I would say to anybody, just just go on Wikipedia and like uh, uh, Google or you know, search on Wikipedia, dissolution of the Soviet Union, and then go down and read about all the deal making that occurred as the Soviet Union was splitting up. And yeah, it was a complicated political process. Um, ultimately, you know, the, the nukes um, ended up, you know, there some went missing or whatever, but surprisingly, I think not that many compared to how many there were. Um, but ultimately in terms of, you know, legal official above board, all the nukes ended up still in the hands of the Russian Federation, the largest piece of the Soviet Union. And there were deals made with the different um, Soviet republics that were leaving um, over their nuclear arsenals of various sorts. Um, You know, one that was made, I I think uh, Ukraine had a fair amount of nukes stored there because it's, you know, in the Soviet Union, it was like the Western flank of the Union proper. Uh, And then you had the the, uh, Warsaw Pact west of that. And, um, if I remember right, I think the deal there was actually what ended up in Russia having that uh, lease to the, the Crimean uh, naval base. And yeah. so it was like, all right, you, Ukraine, yeah, you got a bunch of nukes parked in your territory. Tell you what, you hand those back to us um, and, you know, then we'll make this deal about the, you know, th- there were all these complicated deals back and forth uh, to work these things out. And so... Yeah. Would it be complicated to sort this stuff out? Yeah. But is that a good argument for keeping together an increasingly dysfunctional union composed of people who increasingly uh, don't want to have anything to do with each other politically? You know, you have to ask the question, like when when you make a drastic change to the status quo, there's always going to be costs and inconveniences and so forth. And you have to ask yourself at what point do those costs and inconveniences, which, you know, may or may not be severe. At what point are those outweighed by the costs of keeping in the status quo? Mm. Um, another thing I would, I would bring up that a lot of Americans don't know is that in the civil war, really before the, the war itself started, before fighting actually started um, the Confederacy. Uh, and I think this was still the original Confederate states of just the Deep South, so the four, even Virginia and Tennessee and whatever joined, um, because they joined after Fort Sumter. But before the fighting really broke out, the the initial Confederate government they they tried to negotiate 
with Lincoln. Their their first yeah, that their plan A left out, right? Yeah. 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 Their plan A was not we want to go to war. Their plan yeah. A was we'd like to just leave and yeah. then they only went to war when they believed they had no choice. But um they they actually made offers and I forget off the top of my head the name of the the you know proposal and the meeting and whatever, but they made an offer where they basically said to the federal government, "Hey, if you let us leave, we will pay you compensation for mm. all federal facilities, etc., on our states, and also, by the way, figure out our share of the existing national debt in proportion to our population, and send us the bill." Yeah. And the only reason that there wasn't a peaceful solution to that that dispute was that the Lincoln administration had a religious concept of the union, that it's a sacred, holy, eternal thing that can never be undone, and basically said, you know, the 1860s version of we don't negotiate with terrorists and didn't even make any, you know, effort to to negotiate any of those things. So, but the Soviet, the Soviet dissolution shows that it's at least possible to work a lot of those those sorts of controversies out, um, presuming that all parties are at least trying that's to make key. it. And, and that's why I think what we're doing right now and, you know, what we've been doing on social media ever since this stuff blew up with MTG is important because we're putting these things out into the discourse and making them at least, um, you know, something that you can think about. And the more we can get people to think reasonably and not in civil religious dogma terms, the more we can convince people that this is something to at least consider that, you know, I'm not a crazy deranged uh, uh, nut job or something like this just because I'm thinking that this is maybe an option. Um, the more likely that it might be worked out in in a civilized fashion. Um, you know, now some some people just sort of think, well, Americans are all crazy and uh, they can never work anything out peacefully. Well, we used to be able to sometimes. Yeah, we're the so, same people we used to be. We're just confused we're in the middle of bonhoeffer serious stupidity is where we're at right now but i mean there is potential for a lot of conflict after the fact that's what's going on right now and, and people don't i think understand like how like you know Zelensky and ukraine are not the angels that they've been made out to be here's here's a perfect example of that the whole shit about crimea crimea voted over 90 percent to return to the russian russian federation it was like, I don't know that we've had an election go 90% for anything significant in the United States in my life. Like, that's an overwhelming self-determination. This is what we want. So they do that. Crimea is actually, even though it's on the ocean, it's a very dry area. And they get most of their water for irrigation from Ukraine. And there's these canals that come down out of Ukraine that are made out of concrete that allowed the water to flow into uh, Crimea. So when Crimea became part of the Russian Federation, they said, hey, we still want the water, but we understand it's not free anymore. We'll buy it. And you know what? Do you, do you know this? Do you know the answer to this, CJ? Do you know what the Ukrainians did? They filled the freaking canals with concrete and cut the water oh, off. That's right. I remember hearing about that. Right. Yep. I mean, holy crap. Like, so I can see things like that. There's a lot of stuff that flows across straight state lines right now that there could be some bitterness after the fact. And that's the kind of thing that can lead to these after uh, conflicts, right? There was no conflict when the Soviet Union broke up, but there's been quite a few conflicts 
on border states and specifically pieces of those border states where I think the break maybe was in the wrong place. Since historically Ukraine was shaped like this for, you know, all of 50 years, um, then that piece all has had to go as Ukraine where if, if these two Eastern Lunston Duntas, I think is how they're pronounced. If those two republics didn't go with Ukraine during that breakup, Maybe none of this shit right now is even happening, you know, because there wouldn't have been an eight year civil war on the Russian border because there wouldn't have been a 90 percent Russian region under the yoke of Zelensky that we we I mean, this is the other thing people don't get. We went into Ukraine and caused a coup and unseated a democratically elected leader and put our guy in who eight years earlier was an out-of-work, broke, transsexual actor, right? One of the worst comedians that's ever existed, who's a billionaire by the time we install him. And no one even asked the question, where'd this guy get a billion bucks from, going from dancing around like he's at a uh, – what's the, the big movie that everybody goes uh, to see with uh, – uh, uh, Tim Curry and all in it, Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? right? Like, like a bad version of that. He went from that to a billionaire – a, 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 a token puppet of the WEF that we install, and this, and we're supposed to act like this guy's some kind of hero now. Yeah, well, uh, and then people say you're a tool of Putin. I'm not saying anything about Putin. I haven't mentioned the guy in this particular moment. I'm talking about I'm talking about Zelensky as a standalone. This is insane that we think this makes sense. Yeah, there, there's so much about this this whole conflict that like 99% of Americans do not understand, and again. None of it is to say that Putin's a good guy or whatever, but more to no. say that just like the vast majority of wars in in all of human history, the vast majority of wars in human history, there actually isn't a clear cut good guy and bad guy. The vast majority of wars in human history are between two bad guys and maybe one slightly worse than the other or whatever. But this idea that it's always, you know, black and white, um, just like, by the way, ask anybody who's ever been a bouncer or a street cop in a rough place who's seen a lot of real street fights, ask them how often it's between two guys where one of them is purely innocent, minding his own victim, just, you know, minding his own business, just a victim. And the other guy is 100% the aggressor, like a peaceful guy walking on the street, crazy person just runs up, starts punching him for no reason. Like in real life, grown up world, that yeah. happens less than 1% of the time, if that. So wars are the same way. Wars are the same way. 99.9% .9 of the time, um, there's a lot of blame to go around, and it's not actually as clear cut as the media would make you think who's really the good guy and the bad guy. That that That's just real life. And, there's and, uh, a short film that was done, like an adult version of Power Rangers, and it's like, you know, an after-the-fact thing, and it turns out, I don't really know Power Rangers. My kid watched it, but um, there was, you know, the evil overlord thing, some chick or something, and it turns out she created them too, the Power Rangers. Right. Like it was the conflict was the point in, in the war. And there's a line in it. It's something when two worlds go to war, neither side is innocent. Right. It was very astute for like a, uh, a, a, a I don't remember who made it. I don't remember if it was one of the original people from the Power Rangers franchise or just a fan fiction type thing. Uh, but I think it even had the original actors in it or some shit. It was uh, it was very astute for something like that. And I, I think that maybe sometimes that. That is the place where like actual thought can be expressed because it's not quashed because it's seen as non-threatening. But even that's changed. Like I think part of why we're having this discussion right now is people feel like I don't have a voice anymore and what's going on around me is insane. 
So, the, you know, the place that you used to be able to do that was as a comedian. Comedian could say whatever the hell a comedian wanted. It was all okay. If you didn't like it, don't listen to it. It's a comedian, asshole. It's not, it's not some guy on the nightly news. And then in the last three years with this whole COVID's crap, they even attacked the comedians now. The comedians need to be canceled. And so I think that's part of what's pushing everybody to where they are. And I think these discussions we're having, what this discussion makes me think of, not to say that I'm as important as, uh, as Thomas Paine, but it makes me think of common sense, right? When the founders decided, hey, we probably are going to have to do this thing, they knew they needed people on their side. They knew they would never convince everybody or even a, a huge majority. But they needed to know that people were on board and people understood why they were doing what they were doing and what the goal was. And I think that's the kind of discussions we have to have right now. And for the people that want to fix it, I would even say that maybe if it doesn't result in a complete breakup, it still might be part of fixing it because nothing gets a spouse's attention like, hey, here's divorce papers. I'm done. Right. And maybe it doesn't end up being a divorce, but. All of a sudden, maybe the other party starts to realize, hey, I, I have to I have to do something to stop this. And yeah, force yeah. is not always an option. I don't I don't know how it would play if Texas. Let's just say Texas, because there's there's a bigger movement here than any place for, for this. Texas does this it, through some act of its legislature or something, does it You know, on the books, by the book, what have you. And then whoever's in the White House, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Trump or Brandon or whoever. Right. The next one says, I'm going to invade Texas. I don't know that that diplomatically works very well in 2024, right? I don't I don't know that you can just do that. I don't know if you can just start bombing Dallas. I, I, you know, it, it's, 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 it's not 1860, for God's sakes. We're in a different world right now. And it's not like Texas would be sitting here going, yeah, we all we have are rubber band guns, right? You know, I mean, we have a significant freaking Air Force. It's not like It's not like you can just do this, you know? And just decide you're going to just take it back. It, it doesn't work that easy. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say two things in response to that. One is, and I absolutely do not want this to come uh, to any sort of violence. That's honestly what I'm trying to avoid by raising these things and trying to have reasonable civil discussions about this sort of stuff. But to those who say like, oh, you know, the, the, the U.S. government would just immediately obliterate anyone who, who tried to secede or whatever. OK, they just spent 20 years and trillions of dollars in Afghanistan yeah. and got defeated yeah. by illiterate goat herders with antique yeah. and improvised weapons. Yeah. So I, I don't know what to tell you. And to those who say they got nukes, they're not going to nuke American territory. Um a, well, you, you can't effectively because it doesn't stay in one place. That's part of the problem, right? Like if you nuke Dallas, it's not like everybody else is just okay. It, it doesn't work that way. It's and then what do you have? What do you what do you get back? Now you have a nuclear disaster to go in and fix. I I don't think nukes work. I I, I don't not in a not in a civil war. You're nuking yourself. Yeah, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, their goal is to hold on to these places in large part so that they continue to exploit them economically. And if you turn, you know, all of Texas into a radioactive glow-in-the-dark crater, uh, good luck squeezing any wealth out of it any time in the next billion years, right? Mm. Um, 
and, and then I just I just wanted to chime in on on Thomas Paine when you brought him up a minute ago. Um, I, I actually not that long ago I recorded an episode of my podcast. I still haven't put it out yet with a guy uh, named Dave Benner, uh, a great libertarian dude who recently published a detailed biography of Thomas Paine. So I got Thomas Paine on the brain. Um, it's going to be an episode of my podcast coming out pretty soon. And um, I, I used to talk a lot about common sense when I taught American history for 15 years in, in college. And um, one of the points I would always make about common sense is that one of the most important things that it did was it desacralized the monarchy. And the, the way I put it to my students is there were a lot of American colonists who prior to common sense being published near the end of 1775, their, their thinking was, yeah, we're not happy with the British government. We got this long list of grievances, whatever, but they would think things like what people say, like, oh, but it'd be hard to leave and there might be consequences. But also they had it in their head Something like this. Yeah, the British government has been doing things, pissing us off, whatever, violating uh, the traditional English constitution. But that's because there's dirty politicians in parliament. The king is still a decent guy. He's just getting bad advice. And, um, you know, he means well. And if he heard our side, he'd probably, you know, make like peace between us and parliament. And so in I would argue that in a way, in the minds of the British colonists of that time period, in, in a lot of their minds, the king was serving kind of the same role as either the Constitution or the Union in the mind of Americans today. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the Congress and the current president, whatever. Oh, yeah, they're a bunch of corrupt psychopaths ripping us off and destroying half the world. But, you know, the Constitution or the Union or whatever is still this like magical, sacred thing that we can't question. And one of the most important functions that common sense did was it it spoke of the king in honest language. And, you know, he, he called the king like a crowned ruffian and, you know, just the chief among bandits and the top plunderer. And he basically goes, look, the reason the king is the king has nothing to do with divinely ordained him being on the throne. It's just that he comes from a family of psychopaths who yeah. a long time ago happened to be better at being psychopaths than the competing houses and things. And yeah. so that's why he's the boss. And, and so, you know, I, I, I think like one of the services historically that, that we can provide by raising these, these issues and these conversations is to desacralize the union, um, which has been quote unquote sacred ever since at least Lincoln. Mm. And, yeah. and to say, look, this is not a magical, eternal thing that we should all pay loyalty to, no matter how badly the people running it treat us, um, any more so than we should think that, oh, yeah, Parliament's abusing us and ripping us off. But the king is still this magical thing that we should still be obedient to. Yeah, he, we he would fix it if he knew. monarchy with the Constitution, and we created the Constitution in this form, like – it's like a golden aura around it, and it's this sacred thing, and we, we couldn't possibly exist without it. And I'm, you know, I, I will say that our Constitution is probably better than most constitutions out there. Um, it's just been wholly incapable of doing what it was supposed to do. But what you're talking about is this ongoing belief in it, this ongoing you know, like it's a, a, a sacred talisman or something that will one day it will return on its own, like the return of Christ or something. And it will it will exist as it was supposed to exist. And if we just get the right people to do it, then then it'll be OK or something like. So the whole point of the Constitution was it wasn't supposed to matter if you had the right people. 
that even the wrong people couldn't screw shit up that bad because they would be inherently limited in power. And it has failed to do that. Right. And it has failed. Like you said, it's failed to do that for a long time. So either, you know, I'm I'm quoting somebody here, but in the Jack Spirico redneck hippie duck farmer version, um, it either has created the government we have and the government we have is constitutional. Right. So that's one option. The other option is it failed to present prevent the government that we have, which is unconstitutional. So in either way, it's failed. In either way, it has failed to do what it is supposed to do. And that's that's something very hard for people to accept. But it is kind of the same thing you're talking about. Like the, the so when you were talking about the king, I was thinking about one of my friends named Neil, British citizen. And I was talking to him about anarchy one day. And it didn't even mean to him what it means to the normal person. A, a British citizen hears anarchy. And the first thing they think is you are anti-monarchist. Well, of course you are, but you're also also anti all archists, right? That's the whole thing. But they and he, I think we need the, the royal family. And when I asked him for what, he didn't know. This is a very smart, very intelligent, and very much toward the side of liberty individual. He came to America to run his business because he didn't have the freedom to run away he wanted to in the UK. And he was, if he would, if he was an American, he would be voting. You know, small government Republican. Right. And here he is advocating for this thing because he grew up with it. He was always taught that it was important, but he doesn't know what it actually does other than it's there as a symbol. And that, that's 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 how I think people look at our Constitution today. And what, I know people will get really mad at me for that because I say, well, that, you wouldn't have them guns behind you. I'll acknowledge the, the limited effect that it has had for the good as far as holding the government back. But all I see is it's an impediment to government and the government just advances a little more every year. And if we keep going the way we're going, maybe I won't have those second amendment doesn't get repealed. It won't matter. They'll find a way to do it. They'll give themselves another power. That's, that's what they do. They, you give them one power and they use one power to make two. They use two powers to make four. It, it, it's that, that's, that is the, the place that we're at right now. And, I don't know what else to do about it other than at least discuss this possibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're in this like weird, um, somewhat invisible, although parts of it have been exposed lately, but this like somewhat camouflage, stealthy version of a totalitarian state in a lot of ways where, you know, just, just think just about what's come out in regard to the Twitter files. Yeah. And then and then think about what else is going on at Google and at the other social media companies still because Elon Musk hasn't bought them. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you you have a level of thought and expression control that's far beyond anything that like the old Eastern Bloc countries could have ever had um, just because of technology and things like this. So, you know, in in East Germany. If they wanted to spy on you, they had to like tap your phone, follow you around the street, you know, um, blackmail your, your friends into ratting on you and whatever. And now they can just, you know, collude with big tech, these, these sort of like, you know, corporatist fascistic partners, like the big tech, the big tech companies. And, you know, they can spy on everything uh, that you're doing and they can, without you knowing, they can manipulate 
things like social media and, and just like literally manipulate the entire discourse of what Americans are saying. And, and if you can uh, control and manipulate what people are saying, you can control and manipulate what people are thinking. And so I, I think our, our system in some ways is a lot more oppressive than most people realize because, you know, when you're just walking around in the street day to day going to the grocery store, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so free. I can choose to go to Publix or go to Walmart, you know. Um, but it, it's, it's really ingenious because by, by making the, the control in a way kind of softer and less obvious to most people, you know, it's, it's hard to get pissed off about and resist something you don't even really realize is there as far as controlling you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people need to realize like the, the symbiosis in this discussion we're having today versus the one we had two weeks ago about the fall of empire, because I, I, I don't think that this empire that we have can continue indefinitely I don't think it can continue for our foreseeable lifetime. I, I could get hit by a truck tomorrow and then I was wrong, right? But, I mean, uh, if I live the standard age of a male in America based on my health, I will probably witness the fall of the American empire. And you may really wish we had done this when that happens if we don't. Because you have to – what does that look like? with the beast assembled versus the beast in parts, right? It can either be this is the fall of the empire or the fall of the empire will come through collapse of all the vassals and satellites all array around the world. And I don't know. I You're back to your plane. Your plane analogy is perfect. Like a, a landing is a controlled crash, right? And so the only difference from one crash to the next is how controlled was the crash. If you choose where you're going to crash, how you're going to crash, why you're going to crash, what field you're going to do it in, the speed you're approaching at, you have a lot better of a chance of getting everybody on the ground alive than if, you know, I don't know, a weather event or something decides for you, hey, guess what? We're crashing now, right? Those are usually the ones that nobody walks away from. Yeah, I mean, and anybody who's ever been in a car accident or even just been in like a near miss almost car accident knows that, if you can realize it's about to happen, you know, maybe it's impossible to stop, like you're going out of control. But if you can realize, like, oh, shit, I'm losing control, you can at least maybe steer it off into the grass, into a field, and maybe still damage your car a little bit. But that's better than not understanding what's happening yeah. and just going, oh, this is a sacred, magical car that is always yeah. going to exist. And let me just, you know, trust in the sacredness of this but union. Jesus, I mean, take the wheel like the song says. You know what? That results in remember you remember the videos that they showed us to keep us from drinking and driving when we were in school, the family going off the cliff. That's what happens, right? Yeah. You ain't surviving that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be something like you're gonna crash into something. Your choice is there's a little kid over here, yeah. there's a solid concrete wall here, yeah. and there's a bunch of little bushes and shrubs over here. Okay, well I know which one I'm gonna try and yank the wheel toward. Bushes and it, shrubs, baby. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to hit a redwood. Yeah, it's my car might still object. get. You yeah, know? my car, my car might still get messed up. I might still get injured, but it's the best option there is. And for some idiot to be like, "Why would you swerve into the bushes? Your car is going to get damaged." I'm how choosing think, from the best option, you know. How do you think the rest of the world would respond? Again, going under the concept of best case scenario, because 
part it, people might think I put that out today because I'm a utopian individual. And if you follow me for any length of time, you know that's not true. My view is if you can't make the best case scenario work, then everything else is worse, right? So you have to figure out how to make the best case scenario work or you, you, you don't do a thing, right? So it's, it's more of that. And so I wonder in a best case scenario, you know, maybe you get greater southeast, the western states, the northeast, some middle thing, and everybody, it goes as good as it can. How does Europe feel about this? How does England feel about this? How does India feel about this? How does, does China like immediately like attack Taiwan, right? I mean, or do they go, maybe we don't need to take Taiwan by force now because the, the, the you know, the government, the, the U.S. influence isn't there anymore. I don't, and I don't have answers to any of these. I'm just, you know, as a historian, how do you see that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think most of the rest of the world is just going to kind of recognize sort of the facts on the ground yeah. in the same way that most of the world, when the Soviet Union broke up, were like, OK, um, I guess now we got to establish separate diplomatic relations with the new Russian government yeah. and the new Ukrainian, you know, um, on and on, on Belarusian government and, you know, all, all the different pieces, uh, each of the Baltic states and whatever. And and so I think most of the rest of the world, whatever they think about it, good, bad, smart, not smart, they're just going to, you know, adapt to the new reality and send more ambassadors to North America than they used to and, uh, you know, figure out trade treaties with, you know, whatever, 10, 10 governments instead of one. Um, you know, I, I think the China boogeyman is designed to keep right wingers who might agree with what we're talking about from getting in on line, board. right? Keep them in I, line. I, I think, I think that's what, that's what China is there for. The, the red Chinese monolith boogeyman, whatever. And like, don't get me wrong. The, the Chinese government sucks. I wouldn't want to live under it. No, whatever. But number one, China's got a lot more problems and weaknesses than American right wingers are led to believe in the, in the propaganda they consume. Um, if you look into like the Chinese government, has a tiger by the tail in a lot of ways. They've got over a billion people. Um, and so they're in a more vulnerable position than most people realize, even with, yes, they, you know, the population is disarmed or whatever, but even so, um, you know, a billion pissed off people. I don't care if they got guns or not. You're, you got a problem. Yeah. Yeah. People, pe people might point to Tiananmen square and it's like, yeah, why did they crack down so hard on Tiananmen Square? Because if there were Tiananmen Square things happening in every city in China, the government would fold like a house of cards. Um, all you got to do is look at what happened in the Eastern Bloc countries like the, you know, East Germany and uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland when when the popular and even Romania, where mm -hmm. the popular resistance to the government just got so overwhelming. Most of those governments, the people running them, they were nasty SOBs who ran police states. But they, they acknowledged reality and they ultimately said, you know what, I'm going to stand down. I'm not going to shoot these protesters. And the only one that really tried to resist folding to the pressure was Ceausescu in Romania. And guess what? He and his wife ended up being arrested by their own guards and mm -hmm. uh, quickly tried, lined up against a, a brick wall and executed. The old, the old so, Praetorian guard turns on its emperor. That's, that's yeah. what that was. Again, history doesn't always so, repeat, but it often rhymes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, China's got a lot more vulnerabilities. Their economy is not as powerful as people think, despite, you know, appearances. They've got all sorts of issues. Um, a lot of their economy is is built on sort of like Keynesian, you know, house of cards, bubble economics. They've got they're the ghost cities. They're tearing down giant skyscrapers right now because they have nobody to move into them. 
Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've seen some of these videos. I mean, like these multi-billion dollar developments, they're, they're dropping them, you know, controlled demolition style because they have, yeah. they have like ghost cities. Yeah. Yeah. They, and, you know, they've got the demo, demographic time bomb caused by all those years of the one child policy mm-hmm. and everything. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think China is this like, magical superpower that's just going to take over the entire planet tomorrow if Team America broke in, up into some smaller pieces. And then, you know, what they may or may not do with Taiwan, I don't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, I wish nothing but the best for the people of Taiwan. But this idea that, like, it's our our job to go up to and including thermonuclear war to defend Taiwan, I don't know where that comes from. Um, I don't understand that that mindset. I think it's more of the sacred cow bullshit. Like, yeah. I want Taiwan to remain independent. I want that. I'm not willing to to shed one drop of American blood to make it happen, though. That Taiwan's destiny is in Taiwan's hands, right? But I would at least say we. I, I think we have some level of formal alliance with Taiwan. We have no formal alliance with Ukraine. I keep hearing Ukraine's an ally, and I get I get very angry people when I say, "Please show me the formal alliance between us and the Ukraine that where we agreed to an alliance with Ukraine." Show me that agreement, and no one can. And they get very angry, and they say all kinds of nasty words. And you know, you're making the claim. I'm not right. You're the one making the claim they're our ally. And to me, an alliance is formal or it's not. If it's not formal, it's not an alliance. Israel is an ally. Whether you think they should be or not, they are, right? NATO is an alliance that we are part of formally. There is no alliance with, with Ukraine. We just like them because we can launder our money there. Actually, I could be wrong about this. I'm pretty sure there actually is no formal alliance either with uh, either Taiwan or Israel as well. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure there is no formal treaty of any sort or, or formal oh. agreement with Israel. Then I would say they're not allies either. And yeah, and with Taiwan, I believe there was one, but it was undone when Nixon recognized the PRC oh. in the 70s and okay. agreed to the so-called one, Ch- one China policy. I'm pretty okay. sure ever, ever since then, there has been no official alliance or treaty with Taiwan. And this is why it was such a big deal when Joe Biden you know, just suddenly out of the blue said, oh, yeah, we're we're ready to go to World War Three to defend Taiwan. That was why that miffed the Chinese so much, because the agreement yeah. ever since Nixon was like, hey, it, it was it was what they referred to as strategic ambiguity, which okay. is like, hey, the U.S. doesn't recognize China as its own state and has no formal alliance. China kind of informally agrees that. Um, maybe, maybe this even was a formal agreement. I forget, but basically yeah. China agreed that as long as the U S didn't recognize China as a sovereign state and didn't make a formal alliance with them, China kind of agreed that they would never use force okay. to reabsorb Taiwan, that they would, they promised they would only do it non violently. Okay. And so this is, this is why when, when uh senile Joe suddenly off the cuff goes, yeah, you know what? We're ready to go to world war three for Taiwan. This is why the, the Chinese were so like WTF, you know? Yeah. Um, why they they saw it as so provocative because there was this sort of like status quo strategic ambiguity agreement in place for 50 years, you know, but um, the other thing I, I would say about, about China is, I mean, the more delusional right wingers think that, for example, if the U S broke up into um, formal, you know, formally broke up into like 
four, five, ten, whatever pieces, they think that all of a sudden the the People's Liberation Army is like going to show up in in uh, Sacramento tomorrow, right? Um, this idea that like they're going to invade the United States proper, right? So yeah. so even if you get them to concede, like it's not our job to protect Taiwan or the Philippines or whatever, yeah. it's like okay. Except here's the thing, buddy. Um, professionals study logistics, and I'm I'm not a professional military man, but I've studied a lot of military history, um, and I understand the basic concept of logistics. And my question to you is, number one, how many Chinese soldiers and tanks, et cetera, would it take to actually conquer pieces of mainland North America? Yeah. Uh, where are they going to get those from? And OK, they got they got this giant army. OK, how do they get here? Yeah. Uh, unless unless China has invented teleportation and I don't know about it, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that it's so unfeasible logistically that they would never even try it. Okay, the the only country in the world that could even potentially carry out something like that logistically is the United States right now. And I mean, you can even even think back to World War Two. Okay, the Germans, right, the big, bad, unstoppable German war machine wasn't able to pull off a cross channel invasion of the mainland of the British Isles logistically. Yeah. And the the only country in that war that could do it was the U.S. And that's the English Channel which yeah. is a body of water that many people have successfully swam I was gonna say, across. People swam across the English Channel. But, but the it Chinese... It ain't easy, but it's been done. A human being can swim across the English... Some human beings, I should be clear. Cause I, I'm not saying I can, right? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, 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 but the Chinese uh, you know, Red Army is going to go down like a, a warp zone tube like Super Mario Brothers in, yeah. in Beijing and then pop up on the other pop end in San, in San Francisco or something, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It seems ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've seen no evidence that China has actual ambitions to take over the world in like an actual formal political and military sense. Um, I've seen evidence that they want to expand, uh, you know, their their economic influence. Mm-hmm. But but what big country doesn't? And, um, you know, the country that actually has a much longer track record of trying to project military power to the other side of the planet is not China. No, they, not. yeah, they, they want to be dominant in their backyard. They want to be dominant in like the South China sea in the area right around China. Um, which again, what powerful country doesn't want so to imagine that? like just, just to put yourself in China's perspective that this is not a defense of how they treat their people. I'm talking about just international relations. If China had a military base, in Mexico and a military base in Canada and a military base in Cuba, we might be like, Hey, what, what's, what the fuck, right? Like this is not acceptable. Isn't that what we basically have though? We have military installations all around China, all throughout the South China sea, right? Like we, we have a presence in Japan. We have presence in, in, in Korea. You know, I, I, I think it's kind of, and, and that's the case everywhere. Like, I don't know where the closest Russian base is to mainland America, but I know that there's an awful lot of U.S. bases pretty close to mainland Russia, right? So every person that we have a problem with and say they're a dictator, they want to take over the whole world, we have military installations right up against them. They don't yeah. have military installations in Cuba or Mexico or Canada or uh, you know somewhere in Central America or what have you. They might have a presence there, like China has a huge presence in Panama, because we screwed up the whole canal situation thanks to Mr. Peanut, 
Um, but they don't have a military base in Panama. We did for over 100 years. I served there. I was we had multiple bases. We had an air base. We had multiple army bases. We had a naval uh, base uh, complete with the Marine Corps. So, I mean, like we're the last people to tell anybody jack shit about expansionist military threat to other parts of the world. Yeah, and also think about, like, imagine um, that the U.S. broke into, um, you know, multiple pieces, regions, states, whatever, and imagine even just some of them followed something like a Switzerland path, which included, you know, a powerful but but very much defense-only designed uh, military, right? The porcupine idea. That, that saying actually... Um, you know, there's a saying goes back to ancient Greece. Uh, it's something like the fox has many tricks, but the porcupine has only one. Right. Yeah. And and then this this sort of became adopted by some of like the free staters and things like this. The idea is is to be very good at protecting yourself, but make it defense only. Right. Yeah. And if you look back at World War Two, Switzerland was surrounded by, you know, hostile um powers including you know several of the axis powers and yet they were never invaded and a big part of why is that you know germany and italy looked at switzerland they're like you know what yeah we could probably overwhelm them if we went in with everything we got but i'm not sure that it would be worth the cost and so even someone like hitler ultimately didn't invade switzerland um because you had had, uh, spain aligned with the axis with a, a fascist government and ex- that that government existed up, I think it was like 1976. Never entered the war, wasn't involved. There were, they were involved on. So I don't know if you've ever you, you had to have watched Honey Hitler. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Oh, dude, you got to look up that series because they they try to figure out did Hitler get out, and they go into these installations in Spain where they had like these these ship ports, these huge car like a ship could go inside a cavern. And some of the stuff that was there that was part of the alliance that that uh, Spain had with Germany and then like the rat lines that go down to Italy and and, and what have you, where they, they smuggled Nazi Nazis out after the war and how the Catholic Church was involved. It's it's crazy. They find all of these like they actually find a place in the middle of the mountains in Argentina that looks like it could have been Hitler's place that he hung out. And I mean, it's like the middle of nowhere, but you could tell whoever did have this place, it's all busted as shit now. But this was an important person. This wasn't like a couple of dudes that just, you know, shipped out. Because the theory is that he got to Spain, got on a uh, submarine and made it to uh, South America. It's to- it's not on topic, but it's it kind of is because that was the end of an empire. Right. That was like this. Like, I've never really been a fan of the whole you know, he popped himself in the head in the basement thing because it doesn't make sense to me. It it always made sense to me that he would try to get out. You know, but yeah, yeah, I'm I'm trying to pull up. Um, there's a there's a great Patrick Henry speech from after the American Revolution. Um, it's from 1788, while the the various states were debating whether or not to ratify the Constitution, and mm-hmm. it's now included in what's called the Anti-Federalist Papers, which is really just a collection of various essays and speeches that people who were in favor of keeping the Articles of Confederation made. And I'm trying to find the quote in that speech that, that I'm looking for. Um, 
you know, the one of the things that the Federalists, those who were in favor of ratifying the Constitution, and you have to understand that the Constitution was a centralizing document relative to what came before. The Articles of Confederation that preceded it were much more decentralized in structure, with the states having much more autonomy. And one of the arguments that the um, the 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 Federalists, those in favor of, of passing the Constitution and creating a more powerful central government made, is they said the Articles of Confederation are not adequate to provide for national defense. And then the Anti-Federalists said in response to that, well, um, under the Articles of Confederation, we just defeated the British Empire in our War of Independence. So I think that worked. And in addressing this, and I'm trying to find the line, unfortunately the version of the speech I I pulled up doesn't have the paragraph separated out. makes it harder to scan it. But basically, um, there's a line in Patrick Henry's speech against the Constitution when he says, if we create, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, if we create this new, more powerful central government, we are going to become an empire. Mm. And we're going to end up with a powerful military that is not really about defending our homeland. It's going to be about projecting power outward into the world and trying to make other nations fear us. And he, he concludes the, the, that part of the speech by basically saying, he says something like, when the spirit of America was in its youth, liberty, sir, was its main obsession. But now uh, the spirit of America is being diverted away from being focused on the idea of liberty to being focused on the idea of power and trying to make other nations fear us rather than just you know being strong enough to defend ourselves and that's it. So he, he and, and many of the other anti-federalists, they understood that if you created this more powerful centralized government, it would create a more powerful military. And sooner or later, the politicians would be tempted to use that military, not just to deter aggressors, but to go looking for trouble far beyond our shores. And so, you know, this idea that if if we were broken up into pieces and so you had several you know smaller militaries instead of one big one that automatically means nobody can defend themselves is is just not true it's i, it's, I think it would make us more defensible oh yeah i think yeah. it would make us less offensible because if you wanted to go do something in central africa and 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 you were the northeastern quadrant the remaining of the loyalists in that piece right k street and their or You'd have to convince somebody like the greater South East to go with you. You couldn't just demand that they send their sons and daughters off as sacrifices to war anymore. You'd have to get buy-in. However, if you're thinking of coming over here and jacking around with this place, well, now you've got five or six different presidents, and it takes one to be seen as like a Trump-like guy. Because one thing I'll say about Trump, and I don't, I don't love the guy at all. I don't hate him. I don't love him. I'm kind of nah. Um, but I really believe that people like Putin or Xi Jinping were like, I don't really want to test how freaking willing this dude is to pull some shit. Like, I really don't want to test this guy. I think Brandon are like, we got this. We got a back channel. We're good. But Trump, I think he's like a little bit of that loose cannon feel. Well, you only need one of those five to be that guy. And then you're thinking, I already didn't want to do this. Now I really don't want to do this. Because one thing that North America has going for it is it is incredibly defensible. Like, just because we're surrounded by these two giant oceans, Canada's never going to be a threat, I don't think. I can't see it. I just don't. 
Um, Mexico doesn't have the wherewithal to be a threat. You keep going down from there, you get these very small countries. South America invading, I mean, come on, right? So you, if, you, if your threats are, you know, Asia, European threats, attacking this place is already inherently difficult. Then you've got an armed population. You've got an extremely diverse geography. And you've got incredible weapons technology and capability. Like, I, I can't see a nation that says, you know what, I think it would be a good idea. Let's invade America. Like, I just don't, I'm sorry, I don't see that being, I know we've all been taught that since we were children, that that's the goal. And even, but even if it's the goal, it doesn't mean you're going to do it. There's a lot of things I'd like to do that I'm not going to do because I know I'm going to end up dead. Right? <laughs> or I'm going to end up in a prison cell, so I don't do them. And I think there's a huge dissuading. And if you took all, like, if you took our military, cut the budget down to 60 to 70%. But put it 100% into defending our own borders, which is what it should be doing. Good luck. That's all I'll say. Good freaking luck at that point. Like we we have an iron dome over Israel. We don't have one over our own country. What does that tell you? What I mean, really think about that. Because what I just saw with these balloons and shit, it seems like if somebody did try to attack us, that nobody would do anything until after it was over. You know, either that or it's all Panama, which I think is more likely. I mean, this idea, like, so just balloon, well, we're not sure. What if it was a couple freaking MiGs? Well, I mean, you know, that are moving supersonic. I mean, can we even defend that type of a a vector attack? I don't know that we can if we're being told the truth. And yet we have military assets. We have more military assets outside of the United States than inside the United States. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the events that in hindsight – you can now look back on knowing what happened and say, oh, yeah, that was a sort of a canary in the coal mine that the Soviet Union in the mid 80s was not the, you know, all powerful Leviathan that we were told is there was an incident in I want to say it was 1986 or seven where a young guy from West Germany went and rented a Cessna. I think he rented it in Finland or something, and he, he flew over hundreds of miles of what was supposed to be the most heavily defended Soviet airspace there was in a Cessna. And then he, he literally landed the plane in like red square and got out and said, hi, I'm from Germany and I'm here because I'd like to have a conversation with Gorbachev about world peace. (laughs) And, And that like, that showed the world that this all powerful red Leviathan was actually, you know, in some ways a paper tiger. It was the guy who looks all jacked from the outside, but is really, you know, it's, it's all a facade. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's possible that some of these things that are happening now, we will look back on in 40 years, the way we might now look back on that incident with the Cessna and the guy flying hundreds of miles and landing in Moscow with nobody, you know, no missiles launched at him, no MIG scrambled to go check who the hell he was or whatever. And um, yeah. So, you know, again, possibly symptoms of collapsing empire when you look at some of these things. Well, we've been going quite a while. Let's go ahead and take some uh, starred comments here and, and, and respond to them and wrap up. Uh, we didn't solve this problem today. I didn't expect that we would do so, but I did want to get a, a, a dialogue going on it. 229 Mix says, meant to ask this last time CJ was on, if it fits today's plan. Why, what would you say the last time, when would you say our last time our soldiers genuinely fought to defend our freedom was? 
Um, honestly, that's hard to say. Um, being generous. Yeah. The War of eighteen twelve. Okay. Um, now, now I I happen to think that war was unnecessary and I was like pretty much all of our wars based largely on on bullshit and ulterior motives and propaganda. Um, if you actually look up into that war, a, a big ulterior motive of the the loudest war hawks in Congress at the time was they thought it'd be a good idea to pick a fight with Britain so that the U.S. would have an excuse to try and conquer Canada. That that's that's not very well known today, but that yeah. was actually a big ulterior motive. Now they mostly focused in their in their propaganda on like, oh, they're messing with our ships and whatever. But the thing is, the part of the country that was the most engaged in overseas commerce and that thus was being most affected by like the impressment and all that stuff was New England. And New England didn't want to fight Britain at all. They were totally against it. And yeah. it was you know it was it was congressmen from Kentucky saying like, oh yeah, we got to fight Britain because of our ships, you know? And really it was about a lot of them had this fantasy of invading Canada, which they tried during the war of 1812 and it failed miserably. But, you know, given the fact that I think that war was unnecessary and was based in large part on BS, um, at the very least you can say that once there are actually foreign troops marching around sure. and burning DC, like, okay, then, you know, the, the Americans who marched out and tried to fight them off, you know, yeah, that that's about as strong of a case as you can come up with. But, you know, the Mexican-American War, that was obviously just a land grab. Yeah. Um, you know, what else? The Spanish-American War, that was just about grabbing the Philippines and some stuff, yeah. you know. Um, you know, World War One, World War II, uh, I know a lot of people want to say those, but, you know, I would argue World War II only happened because of U.S. intervention in World War One that screwed up how that played out. Yeah, um, I would be a little more kind. I would say World War Two. I would not say World War One, and I would say our intervention in World War One is the chief cause of World War Two, and we caused it. But I do think at that point in history that Nazi Germany was a threat to the entire world. Yeah, I mean, I'll at least be willing to say, um, you know, if somebody asked me, like, when was the last time that... And I think we... Uh, let me add to it, though, before you respond. So I, I do think we provoked the Japanese into bombing Pearl Harbor, but they did bomb Pearl yeah. Harbor, right? So you did drop bombs on U.S. military assets and U.S. soils before anybody shot you back. So I, I, I got to give it, like, maybe it's like a 50% or something there. Like, I don't know that once we caused it, there was a good way out of it other than through it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say for sure, World War Two was the last time that, like, the the enemy regimes were genuinely like bad, you know, yeah. where where it wasn't mostly just a bunch of BS like it was with the Kaiser pretending he was this monster or whatever. He's just yeah. typical European ruler. Um, and so, you know, obviously there's an argument to be made, as you were saying, that like, OK, this thing is happening. So now we got to clean up the mess. The The problem I have is that that's not how FDR took the nation to war. FDR didn't say, all right, guys, you know oh, what? Yeah. We shouldn't have got involved in World War One. Unfortunately, since we did, there's yeah. this mess, and so now, unfortunately, we have to clean it up. Instead, he lied and manipulated the country into getting into World War One by provoking the Japanese. So I, I think that's that's not a good that's not a good uh, thing or a good precedent. No, I agree. Um, with that. And, and he then gets put on a pedestal as one of our two or three greatest presidents, and one of his main achievements was lying and manipulating the country into into war rather than being above board and just saying to the American people, "All right." I think getting into this war is the right thing to do. Let's have a vote on it or something. Um, but, but yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that makes world war two messy in a lot of ways, much more messy than most Americans realize, you know, 
Our biggest ally that did most of the work of defeating the Nazis was Joe Stalin's Soviet regime, which I don't know, you know, trying to figure out is he worse than Hitler or vice versa is like uh, you got to bring out your 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 uh, micrometer to measure yeah. the differences in murderous evil between those two regimes. Um, and, you know, the fact that Eastern Europe ended up under the boot of Joe Stalin at the end of that war means that war did not have quite as universally happy of an ending as most people think. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I, w- I would say, too, is that while for sure the, the German, uh, Japanese, and to a somewhat lesser extent Italian regimes were bad, that we were fighting World War II, um, look how much the U.S. bombed civilians in that oh, war. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, by far, by yeah. far, the number one government in bombing civilians in World War II, by a huge margin, is Team America. And, yeah. you know, does does a Japanese uh, 10-year-old schoolboy who happened to live in Hiroshima, does he deserve to be incinerated because he had the bad luck to be born under a nasty government? I mean, you know, does a... Does an 80 year old, uh, you know, German woman in a nursing home in um, Dresden deserve to be incinerated yeah. because she yeah. had the bad luck to be born in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, I mean, first, he's not talking about atomic bombs when he talks about Japan uh, exclusively either. The firebombing that the U.S. did and the British did in consort with the United States in Germany and in Japan. We firebombed the hell out of Tokyo. By the time we, we dropped those two bombs in Japan, I personally think we did it as a global move to demonstrate power because the Japanese were on the verge of total, complete collapse. They were Mm -hmm. incapable of continuing the war for much longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Much was made that we saved millions of lives on both sides by not invading mainland Japan. We wouldn't have had to. A lot of the, uh, the military forces were about to turn on the emperor uh, it might have went another few months, but there was they had completely lost the ability to continue to feed themselves, to bring materials in, to function, because we burned their cities and their civilians in those cities to the ground. I mean, most of the stuff there was still made with paper and wood, right? Like, I mean, and you drop incendiary firebombs. And uh, I, I honestly believe the United States committed war crimes, in, in both the German and Japanese theater with the bombing. Yeah, yeah, the the deliberate and, and it wasn't like they were trying to hit army bases and weapons factories and yeah. oops, they they hit resi- they were deliberately targeting residential civilian areas with no military value. Um and I, I did a podcast episode on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki um some years back. Most Americans have no idea the whole story of that and the details. And, you know, just just one thing I'll mention is the Japanese government had actually um, shown through messages some willingness to surrender prior to the A-bombings. And they only asked a few conditions. Basically, the main thing they wanted was to try to keep the emperor in place as like a figurehead. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the Americans said, no, we are only going to accept unconditional surrender. Yeah. Now, when you tell your enemy you're only going to accept un- unconditional surrender, what you're really telling him is. You need to fight to the last man. Okay? That's what you're saying, yeah. And and um, and then guess what? Team America dropped those a bombs, and I agree with you, Jack. I think a big part of it was just to show off to the Soviets the new toy we had. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and then after dropping those two a bombs and getting them to say, okay, fine, unconditional surrender, you got it. Then in comes Team America to occupy the place, and guess what? They go, hey, you know what? You can keep your emperor after all. How about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How gangster was- is that? 
It was, like I said, when people get upset with me when I say we committed war crimes because we're the good guys, we don't do that. If you don't think firebombing children intentionally is a war crime, then you don't believe war crimes exist. Or you think that it's okay because we did it, which I think is, is really, you know, well, if we did it, it must have been necessary, you know. Um, Stand for Freedom says, saw a report from Epoch Times regarding Biden's deal with the, the WHO to give them authority to dictate our emergency response, I guess, to pandemics. He says state sovereignty overrides this, right? I, I keep seeing this, and I think it's all crap, and it's just right-wing rag bullshit, because that would be a treaty which requires ratification to have any authority. And so I think that's right up there with the emails that I get to tell me that Biden's about to introduce Biden bucks. I I just don't care. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have no knowledge of anything of that story, so I have no idea. Yeah. Um, Mead Maker says, question for both split, states split and govern themselves. How do you see the government operating? A president has Senate more like the UK or more like the UK is currently operating. Of course, they have a prime minister where their legislature elects their prime minister. Right. Like their prime minister is kind of like our speaker of the house in a way, like the speaker of the house and the Senate majority leader in one or something. I would think the vast majority of states or regional things would look like what we're used to because the governments within every state are already that way. One of the things when you look at the potential for Texas to move into its, its own national state is, is that we literally have a Texas position for every position in the United States government. We have an analog, you know, like a secretary of state and what have you. Um, all of our county governments run that way. So I think the fact that all those forms of government are in place and all and most people tend who are voters tend to be comfortable with that form of government because they grew up with it. I don't see a huge change in that. Would you? No, no, I, I would expect most of them in terms of just the basic overall structure uh, would be pretty similar. And, um, you know, one example I'd point to to back that up is that. Um, well, I'll mention two. One is that um, when the initial 13 states declared independence and then wrote their own state constitutions all of them adopted i believe a bicameral legislature with a governor and the, the sort of mm -hmm. three branch thing we think of the yeah. the exception was pennsylvania pennsylvania yeah. started with Probably a unicameral well. uh, legislature and a like a weak governor and then within a few years they changed it they passed a new constitution similar to the rest of the states yeah and um the other example i would mention is the confederate states of america which if you ever go and read the Confederate Constitution, in terms of the structure of the government, most of it is a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Yes. There, there, there were some noteworthy important differences, but most of the overall, you know, three branch idea and whatever like that was similar. So, yeah, I think just in terms of like habit and what people are used to, I, I think most of them would be pretty similar to the usual kind of bicameral legislature, but three overall branches kind of a thing yeah. I, would, I would expect. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you that Texas, actually, we have the, probably the weakest governor of any state. And I don't mean individually talking about Abbott. I mean the power of the office. There's a lot more power in the lieutenant governor's office than is typical. Where a lieutenant governor kind of serves in most states like a vice president. They don't really do anything. They're there in case you need them. Where There's a lot of split in power between the governor and the lieutenant governor in Texas. 
And the reason was when Texas decided to enter the union, they didn't trust it. And they knew if like if we got one governor that was willing to sell out, there needed to be a check. So if we at least had kind of like a like a like a like a dual presidency sort of type of thing that at least one could prevent the other from completely shitting the bed on it. Um, so that's that is why the Texas governor is, is somewhat a restricted level of power compared to other governors. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, and you might see states do something like that. But again, the government of Texas looks exactly like the government of the United States. We have a bicameral legislature. We have Senate. We have a House. You know, we have a, the governor has a cabinet. The cabinet sees to certain things. We have elected offices. Now, a lot of things that in the government of the federal government are are appointed bureaucrats at state levels. They're often elected offices. Right. So like, you know, the attorney general of the United States is selected and appointed, but the attorney general of Texas is elected by the people. So you might see more of that type of uh, I guess you'd call that representative democracy than we do at the federal level today. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, and and I'm, I'm sure you probably agree with me that like democracy isn't this magic thing that's always the no. best answer to every question. But but one argument you can make in favor of the states, you know, having these more of the post be elected is that it's at least somewhat of a curb on the evolution of a genuine deep state. If more of the people running kind of the bureaucratic and administrative and law enforcement agencies are elected rather than just having everybody be appointed. There's an interesting question, and you can answer it as well, because I, I think you're in my my camp with voting right now. Um, would I vote on a new constitution and participate, or would I still abstain from voting and participating? Break up or no? Specifically, being asked from Thomas to me. So this is this is not a simple question to me because there's two parts to this. So if the state of Texas got a good organized movement together and was seeking nationalism to become, the, the, let's say the Texas nationalist movement gets traction and there was a measure on a ballot here in this state to formally consider secession i would vote for that because i think it actually matters and if it passes it significantly changes things in my world so i think it matters i also think it would be a very tight race i don't think i think people think if we did that that it'd be like 70 percent. no we have a lot of liberals in, in Texas, especially, you know, like our, our population centers, Austin, Houston, uh, Dallas, San Antonio and El Paso. Right. So I don't think it would be cut and dry. Once it was done, I would make the decision the way I do now. The reason I don't vote now is because I don't believe it matters. And if I didn't believe my vote within that state after it became a nation mattered, I, I wouldn't vote uh, because I don't do things that don't matter because somebody said I should. So I don't vote because I don't think it matters the way I vote. Where I live, it's all Republican. It's 100% Republican. Most of the office holders win with 70 to 80% of the vote. I'm just going there to be a token in this thing, and I know how the system really works. I know it's even at the state level. It's all controlled by lobbyists. So no. But if the if you're asking me, if you give me a ballot initiative for certain things, like it ended up not being a ballot initiative to get open carry in the state. It ended up being handled by the legislature. Had they put that on the on on the ballot, I would have went and voted on just that one thing, because if that passes, then this liberty that should be here anyway happens. 
So that, that I think a lot of people get a misunderstanding about why I don't vote. Like I think it's immoral or something. I think it certainly can be, but I, I, I don't think that it's, it's genuine to claim voting is immoral and say it doesn't matter. Cause if something doesn't matter, it can't be immoral, right? It has to have an impact. And I don't believe my vote has an impact. So I, that I'm not talking around it. That's just how I feel. Yeah. I mean, my, my approach to voting is, um, I vote extremely rarely. I can't remember the last time I voted and, but I'm not dogmatically like it's always, there, there are obviously some anarcho-libertarians who are like, it is always wrong to vote. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, and I think I'm in agreement with Lysander Spooner on this. I think that his stance actually was very pragmatic where it was like, well, you know, kind of thinking about a, like you were saying, how likely is it to matter and to potentially affect things? And yeah, can you trust it? Show me the math. And, yeah. Right. And, and then B, like, what are you voting for? So for example, um, you know, let's let's say it was like Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney again. And let's say Florida was still a swing state like it was back then. And um, you might say, well, you know, it's going to be a fairly close election and Florida is a big swing state. So should yeah. we go vote? I would say, well, I don't believe there's enough difference between Obama and Romney exactly. to be worth my trouble. So so I would balance out. Does it really matter? Now, if the election is between uh, Joseph Stalin and Ron Paul and I oh, think Florida is going to be a, a swing state. Yeah. I'm going to go vote for Ron Paul, you know. Yeah. But and that that would be my approach to like a constitutional question, et cetera, as well is like, is it likely to matter? Will it be close? Will my vote count? Yeah. Versus also what I'm voting for, is it actually really good or does it not really matter? Right. Yeah. I mean, like another thing that would get me to vote if if Texas got a ballot initiative and so we're going to completely decriminalize cannabis, I'll go vote for that because I completely believe in it and I don't have to trust somebody who promised me that if you elect me, I'll work on this. It's done. So in like that direct democratic process, and in this case, you're not adding government, you're removing it. Yeah, sure. And it may not pass, uh, but I'll take the the 10 minutes or whatever to go do that because it's a clear cut thing. If you, like I said, on the uh, open carry thing, if the legislator hadn't handled it, because what the movement's next, the next thing the movement was going to do was push for a ballot initiative, which is actually Texas is one of the easier states to get that done uh, in and, and basically put it in front of the people themselves. Uh, I would have voted for that, but I'm not voting for people because I don't trust any of them at all. Now, again, you give me a Ron Paul, you know, if I lived down in Galveston when he was serving, maybe I would have went and voted just for him because I actually believed in the man. Where none of these people now, Abbott, whatever, Trump, I don't believe in any of these people. And I don't think that they're significantly less bad than the alternative. Um, you know, everybody's losing their mind about this woke shit right now. Right. And, and I get it. And it's why we're having a big part of why we're having this conversation. It might be too big of a part of why, because there's a lot of other things that I think are far worse that people don't get upset about. But this shit was going on when Trump was president. Right. So that didn't change because Trump wasn't you know, president anymore. It's, it, this is this wokeism is not new. It's been you and I have both watched it build over the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll just, you know, use my own example. Um, DeSantis, who I obviously don't agree with on everything. Um, but, you know, overall, he's been one of the better governors in the entire country the last several years. Yeah. 
Um, and on COVID know, and wokeism, I'll give him both of those. Yeah, and you know he's he's pretty good on on a lot of other things like uh, firearms freedom and self defense yep. rights and things like that. And he's you know by the standards of other governors, he's pretty fiscally conservative and all that. Um, and so yeah, I given all the other available options, I would like to have him continue being my governor. I'd actually rather have him still be my governor than become president, to be honest with you, because of foreign policy. But um, you know, I didn't I didn't bother voting for him, even though I preferred him to get reelected you know in 2022 i didn't bother because i could read the tea leaves and i knew he was going to be reelected in, in the biggest landslide in the last like 30 years in florida which he was so i didn't bother because i was like all right he's he's got it walking away yeah yeah next one here is an interesting one and it is why, why being con- why being conflict with your neighbor when it's the government that's the problem but I think that part of why we're having this discussion today is because we do have the neighbors are in conflict with each other. You know, I, 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 I think yeah. that that's the whole game of the sociopath is that, you know, the, the cartoon meme, right? With the king standing there and the pitchforks and the, the torches are out there and they're all getting ready to go kill the king. And the guy whispers in the king's ear and says, sire, all you have to do is convince the, the, the torch people to fight with the pitchforks people and it'll all be OK. Like, I think that's exactly what the game is. Did I lose you? I, I think I think I my internet hiccuped for a minute there. Can you hear me okay. now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. And then, what about this? This is actually something I wanted your take on. Right now, I think this this guy has the same problem. <laughs> but what about us four slobs stuck in blue areas that don't go along with what's going on? So that 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 is all these islands like that are like the left behinds is what I would call them that, you know, and I'm going to bring this map up right now. Um, there's a lot of blue islands and there's a lot of red islands, depending on what part of the country you're looking at. And this whole thing, one of my problems with Marjorie Greene's uh, tweet about all this is this idea that we'll just break up between red and blue states is insane. There's not a it's not like you said, it's not like the Mason Dixon line in the Civil War or something. But if you look at that map, there's a lot of places where, you know, you can see some people being left behind and pretty isolated. I think our discussion earlier about like how Texas would handle things. I'm fine with Dallas being a progressive shithole as long as they leave everybody else alone. Because if, if their thing really works, well, let them let them demonstrate it on their own. Like this, like, because I think there's like two, there's really two schools of thought here. There is, I want everything my way, or I want to be left alone. Because if you're the sociopaths running the United States right now on the liberal side, and you want total control, you should be down here campaigning for Texas secession. And you should want Texas and Florida to both go. Because if you get that, You've got everything you control, but they don't want that. They don't. I think I think you made a tweet to this point. They don't want total control of what they have. They want to control everybody everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think a lot of people who are not progressives don't really understand uh, the progressive ideology. And I've, I've done some coverage on my podcast about like where it really comes from and what it really means. And um, including, by the way, I think even a lot of today's progressives don't really understand what it is they're they're believing and espousing. But, um, yeah, my my tweet, you know, sort of concluded like that, that people don't understand that progressives, it's an evangelical political faith, essentially. And they feel 
like they're not particularists like a lot of conservatives and libertarians are who are just like, hey, I just want things in my area the way I like it. They're, they're, th- this is why if you look back historically, progressive presidents have usually been the most aggressive in overseas foreign policy um, because they have this messianic idea of they, this is, this is where the idea of like, well, we got to, you know, force wokeism on Pakistan comes from, you know, um, <laughs> and 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 so you know i i believe that progressives are and have been since like 1900 the biggest imperialists in american history uh, both externally and internally and so my my tweet thread i did on this which blew up a bit by my humble standards uh said progressives would rather force 80% of what they want on everybody mm-hmm. than have 100% of what they want but only in their little area yeah and so that yeah. that's you know something you need to wrap your head around it's hard if you're somebody who's, whose overall attitude is like, I don't care what someone hundreds of miles away does. I just want to do my thing over here. Yeah. Hey, I'm with you. That's how I am. But you have to understand, like, that's not how these people are. Like, you know, Utah might be cool just being Utah and has no desire to force Utah's ways on New York. But New York or California or somebody, they want to force their ways on, on Utah. So, you know, um, but yeah, I, I think about a place with bizarre laws, Salt Lake City. I've seen some things in Salt Lake City, and I go, what? And I know it's kind of connected to the LDS. Like, what are you guys thinking? Like, we went to a bar there when I did a prepper show long, long ago. It's the, the one I met John Pagliano at. And uh, so this is like 2010. And we're at this bar. It's a restaurant with a bar, right? So we go in. They say it's going to be like a 30-minute wait for the table. So we all go to the bar to get a drink, which you actually could in this place. You could drink there. So we all get our drinks. And we had a pretty big party, like eight of us, but the hostess like figures some shit out, pushes a couple tables together and gets us a table in like five minutes, but it's in the bar area. Right. So we can still have our drinks, but we're sitting at the bar and we're like, okay, so we'll go take our table. You can't take your drink to the table, but I'm not done with it yet. Oh, you can have it. One of the staff has got to carry the drink from the bar to the table. And I'm telling you, CJ, my office isn't as big as the distance from the bar. To the, it was like, boom. And they had to do it because the law said so. Now, that's a bizarre, weird law. I have not seen any lobbying by the government of the city of Salt Lake to make that law have, you know, traction in Texas. But I see California's governor doing exactly that all the time. California's governor worrying about the right to carry in Texas or Florida, not your business, Gavin, not your freaking business. And that is the chief difference here. And I think that most people who are at least open to the idea that we're discussing today are of that category. And most people opposed to it, even if they consider themselves right, they're the latter. They worry about they're the same person. Like We can't have we can't have legalized cannabis. Why do you Okay, that guy down the road? He's a dope head. He'll be smoking dope all the time. He's already smoking dope all the time. But they can't live with somebody doing something, something different than them. And I, I don't know if that's an innately human trait or it's a modern thing. I don't I don't know. But it definitely seems like the majority of people on both sides of the aisle are that way. Yeah, I think at least in our time, it's, you know, it's certainly present on on all sides. But I think it's more pronounced in the progressives, especially lately. And again, I think yeah. part of it, part of it is that, that progressivism, one of its like original ingredients, it's not the only one, but one of its original ingredients as a, as an ideology was um, evangelical pietist Christianity. 
And even though most progressives today would claim to be, you know, secular or atheists or whatever, yeah. they still have the attitude yeah. of an evangelical pietist Christian yeah. of it is my mission to ultimately convert the whole world. Right. We have to. It's the same impulse that was behind alcohol prohibition. Most people today don't realize the biggest yeah. proponents of alcohol prohibition back in the day were progressives. And that's not an progressive accident. women specifically, really. I mean, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that people don't want to admit, the whole temperance movement. Uh, K-Box says, could NATO slash WBF be the bad guy in all this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or or at least you know, like I was saying before, I don't think there's 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 almost never pure good and pure bad guys, yeah. but like, you know, it's certainly possible they could be more of the bad guy than the other side. Yeah, my issue with NATO is the purpose of NATO. It when we formed NATO, had there not been a Warsaw Pact formed, then there wouldn't have been a justification for NATO. Warsaw Pact's been gone for most of my adult life. Still have NATO. It's bigger, stronger, more expensive, and more dangerous than it was during the Cold War. So that's my problem with NATO. Its purpose has long been exceeded, and it's it, it, there's, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Like we do not yeah. need a NATO. NATO today to me is incredibly dangerous because we keep letting more and more countries in. Some of them are small, aggressive nations, and we are bound by that treaty that if somebody attacks them, that we have to go to their defense. So, you know, you let a country like like Montenegro into NATO. I mean, like you've got like this. It's like walking into a bar with a bunch of really big bodybuilders. You know, you're all jacked up and ready to go. And you let some sniveling little twerp go in there with you. And you say, look, man, we don't want any trouble. But if there's a fight, I got your back. That guy's going to start a fight. He's go sooner or later. He's going to get liquored up. and He's going to start a fight. And he's going to wait for his boys to come in and fight the battle for him. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're making NATO more of that. And then the whole idea of bringing Ukraine into NATO, like, if you want, do you want war with Russia? Because it sure seems like you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the when NATO when the NATO treaty was originally being debated, first off, it only included a tiny fraction of the countries that are in it today. It was basically the U.S., Canada, and not even all the countries of Western Europe at the time. Yeah. And you got to remember, late 40s, Europe was still in rubble, mostly, from World War II. And so the justification was, all right, Europe's still in rubble, so in order to just deter the Red Army from trying anything, yeah. we need this thing. And it was largely sold to the American people as, like, don't worry, in like a decade or two, Europe will be rebuilt and they won't need us and we'll come home. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it lasted the entire Cold War, and here we are over 30 years after the Soviet Union ceased to exist, and NATO didn't go away. It got bigger and took on like 100 additional missions and whatever. Um, so if yeah, you it's, say anything negative about it, you're a tool of Putin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like instant, like, can, can, can anybody out there have a coherent argument or an adult discussion anymore, right? Like, when somebody says, hey, I, I think this is really expensive, and what are we getting for our money? And your response is, you're a Russian asset. Like, to me, right? Like, I'm a Russian. I'm sorry. I have some influence. I don't have that much freaking influence, right? Like, I, I, I'm i sure Vladimir Putin does not know who Jack Spirico is, nor does any member of the Russian government. I don't know. Maybe I have a listener over there. I, I don't know. But I've never been I've never been contacted by any of them. I'm not that important. But that's your response. And the reason is you don't have one 
but articulate and makes sense and was built with logic and decent rhetoric. So you result to a catchphrase. It's and to me, it's the same thing. It's like when the, when the gay people want to be able to get married. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Like, okay, so you don't have an actual argument. You have a catchphrase. And you think because it rhymes, it makes a point. And it does not. And this is, this is, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, 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 uh, Bonhoeffer, but I feel like the theory of stupidity written by Bonhoeffer is our world today. And his, his whole premise on it is, that the person who is stupid does not mean intellectually slow. They have been made stupid. They have made been made stupid by power, and they're far more dangerous than a violent person because a violent person can be resisted with violence, but a stupid person enables violence and cannot be directly resisted, and you get up with this mob enabling of violence. And he was pointing out, obviously, what the Nazi threat was in his own country and they came and arrested him and threw him into a, uh, uh, you know, a concentration camp. He ended up actually being either died or executed right before the war ended. Um, he spent most of the war in confinement like that. And primarily because he wrote that and other things. And it wasn't even like a direct. It was like a, it was kind of like musicians in the 60s wrote about drugs. You know, they didn't actually come out and say it. It was kind of inferred. That that's what his writing really was, and he was a minister and uh, a philosopher, and they they he was living in his parents' house, and they came and arrested him for pointing out that stupid people were dangerous, you know. Yeah. And, and you yeah. think that like that can't happen here, and I think it was John Lennon that said, you know, when they say it can't happen here, it's about to happen here. Yeah, yeah, and you know, war propagandists they they don't have to invent new tricks because the old tricks keep on working like a charm every damn time. Yeah, and so. You know, you can go back to the lead up to the Spanish-American War in the 1890s, and some members of Congress were anti-war and were like, why are we fighting Spain? They're not doing anything to us. And the response by the by the stupid, uh, uh, you know, like John McCain and Lindsey Graham's of the day, which were Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge, their response was not to engage in rational discourse of the pros and cons of going to war against Spain. Their response was to call members of Congress who disagreed with them on war pro-Spanish. So, you know, the Speaker of the House, who was also a Republican like Henry Cabot Lodge, and the two of them were actually friends and agreed on most domestic political issues, but the Speaker of the House at the time wasn't down with going to war against Spain. And so when he gave a speech in favor of staying out of war with Spain, Henry Cabot Lodge's response was, I am sorry that your bizarre pro-Spanish sympathies have warped your otherwise sound mind. And to me, this is like when Tulsi Gabbard said, I don't think we should be involved in Syria or trying to go to war against Putin. And Hillary Clinton called a sitting member of Congress and military veteran and, you know, still an officer in the National Guard, a Russian asset, you know. And by the way, um, if if I'm uh, bankrolled by the Kremlin, I don't know where the money went, because if I was being bankrolled by the Kremlin, I would have a much bigger house and a much nicer car and a lot more shiny shit laying around. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, dude, I appreciate you having this conversation with us. We went almost two and a half hours today. Like I said, I don't think we solved the problem or maybe convinced everybody that it's a good idea to go forward with uh, the discussion. But I think we are going to have this discussion. And I think this is only the beginning of it. And I think the thing I was most struck by 
is how many people were open to the discussion when it happened. There were the the shriekers. They're always the loud ones. But I don't know if you've been looking. Some of the folks that are far larger influencers than us on on Twitter that have, you know, a couple hundred thousand or more followers are putting out the same poll I did. You know, would you support the potential for this? Uh, my poll was actually if there was a, a way to allow states to vote to peacefully leave the union, would you support the the, 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 the means by which to do it? And it was like 75% said yes. But that's my audience. I expect that. But some of these people, they have like, you know, 30, 40,000 responses to their polls. And they're up in the 60, 70 percentile pro. And that that's interesting to me. And I, I know what we said about the sociopaths today, that they want to control everybody everywhere. But there seems like there's a lot of left wingers that are open to this idea, too, because you know, two people hate each other. Divorce is reasonable. It's probably better than staying together. And so I, I think we're I think we've only scratched the surface on this discussion as, as a people. Yeah. And, you know, I think the more people can try to have reasonable discussions about this, the better it is, because the, then it, the more likely it is to play out in a relatively more peaceful and orderly sort of a way. And I think it's important for people like you and I and people somewhat bigger than us, but who are still in the independent alternative media to have these conversations, because God knows the the mainstream establishment, CIA infested media, um, you know, your CNNs and whatever. They're not going to have reasonable, intelligent discussions about this sort of stuff. So somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. And I think that we've got to go back to this whole idea of empire collapse. Like if that happens. This is probably happening in some way because there are movements afoot to do this. There's also like we didn't get into it today, but there's movements right now that are less of what we're talking about and more of like state level secession. So there's this entire movement and it's like got legs. It's like on the ballot and shit in uh, Washington for almost half of the state of Washington to leave the state and join with Idaho. You know, what happens? What if everybody votes for it and everybody says we're doing it and the federal government says no? Well, what are you going to do? Or the state of like Seattle says no. What is Seattle going to do? Send the Seattle National Guard to Western Washington? How many how much of the you know, they're going to send the Washington National Guard to Western Washington? How much of the how much of the how much of the National Guard of the state of Washington do you think lives in Western Washington and is on the other side of that. Like, I don't think there's a lot of people in Seattle proper joining the guard. So, like, there are things that I think that people say, well, that'll never happen. But if, if people just decide to do a thing, sometimes stopping the thing is not that easy to do. What are you going to do? I mean, Virginia has the same thing going on. It's not as formalized yet. But the idea that certain counties within Virginia would join with West Virginia. And let's remember where West Virginia came from. Right. I mean, there is some point where we have to accept that, like, something like this is going to occur. The United States isn't going to go on forever as, as its current form. It can't because no one ever did. We talked about that last time. Right. No one. What 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 place is the same as it was 2000 years ago? Yeah. Nothing no. lasts forever. And, you know, borders do sooner or later change to reflect the facts on the ground as far as. The, the culture and politics and people that live there as that changes over time. And so when you try to prevent borders from changing to reflect the reality on the ground better, you're, you're on a fool's errand 
it's going to end up changing eventually to better reflect what's actually going on with the people on the ground. It's just a question of, do you do it intelligently, intentionally, peacefully, or do you try and prevent it? And then it breaks out into a violent, chaotic mess. And that's what I think most decent people would rather avoid. Agree. Well, anyway, CJ, again, thank you for being with us today. Uh, we'll have this out as an audio pretty quick uh, right right after I wrap up here today. And uh, I have your links for like all your social media, your podcast and everything in the show notes already so that people that are discovering you for the first time today can come check out what you're doing. They definitely should. And you know, just want to say kudos again to being like a renegade freaking historian. Uh, we need more people like you. Uh, you. You come from academia, but you've left it. And uh, you have complete and total freedom now to, to speak the truth as you see it uh, with yeah. great historical perspective. So that's why I asked you to be on today. And it was great. Well, I really appreciate the invitation to be back on, especially so soon after the last time we spoke. And uh, yeah, Dangerous History Podcast. Check it out wherever you consume your podcasts. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I left academia six months ago and I feel like it's only recently that I've like fully made the mental transition to being off the reservation. So I'm, I'm unloading a bit lately, um, including on Twitter. So yeah, you've been on kind of fun. fire lately, man. Good for you. Take care, man. Thanks for being with us today. Been fun. Bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.